Steve and Kevin review Dominaria for Vintage on episode 78 of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to episode 78 of So Many Insane Plays, our Dominaria set review. I'm Kevin Crone with Stephen Menendian. Hi, everyone. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, you can tweet us at Many Insane Plays, email us at So Many Insane Plays Podcast at gmail.com, or leave feedback on Eternal Central, MTG Cast, or TheManadrain.com. We have a few announcements this episode, and we have a fun one, one that we've been kind of excited and looking forward to announcing, and it's finally here, and that is the next season of the VSL. This time, it is the Team VSL, taking a page from the Team Modern Super League that Randy is currently finishing up. This league will follow similar rules, with teams of three squaring off with multiple decks, and and some stringent rules as pertains to decks not overlapping by a certain number of cards, so we are compelled to have some variety in deck selection. Well, the more important point is that this podcast is vetting its own team. <laughs> That's right. So, as three-person teams go, then Steve and I have have partnered up with owner and operator of Eternal Central, Jason Jaco, to be our third, and so we are fielding team So Many Insane Plays for the Team BSL. And the event kicks off just next week. It begins April 19th. Now, we don't play the first week, but mark your calendars because VSL is now kicking off on Thursdays at 9 p.m. Eastern, so we get a 6 p.m. start time on the West Coast. Steve, I'm pretty excited. What do you think? I think it's going to be amazing. I I like the format a lot. So just to explain the setup a little bit more, each team will bring six different decks. Uh, That is, they'll develop, think about, tune and present six decks in advance and the opposing team that they face will see those decks and have an opportunity to remove to ban one of those decks uh from the opponent's gauntlet Mm -hmm. and uh that's that's really cool where we've been really thinking through what some of our options are and and bringing jaco and having andy in in the uh, probasco in the um, alternate slot gives us a, a really big range so uh, you are going to see some really cool, exciting, and certainly spicy decks from our side. Yeah, definitely. I'm pretty excited about the prospects and the systems and the interactions of game theory, basically, that are generated by the banning process produces a whole new perspective on deck development and selection. So it's going to be really interesting to see how it plays out because I think that the system itself will take the forefront in a number of cases and produce some really interesting matchups. Can't wait. Yep. Steve, do you have any content updates for us? Well, I, I feel like a broken record because I repeat this every time, but um, the history of Vintage Series at long last is concluding. Uh, the All but the last two chapters are live and up, and the last two chapters are in final edits and should be up soon. So once this project is all done, we'll be going back and, you know, because this unfolded over, over, you know, five, six years. We'll be um, re-editing and compiling everything for a book. Awesome. Awesome. So more updates to come on that, right? Yeah, I think the, tw- the chapter 
24, which is 2016, should be up by the time this podcast is live. And then the last chapter with the conclusion to the book will be up shortly after that. I'm really proud of the, them. They, they turned out wonderfully. They're turning out wonderfully. Fantastic. Glad to hear it. So, Steve, we have at least one very current piece of news and announcements to discuss here, and that is the banned and restricted list updates that came out today. So, we're recording this on Monday, April 16, and we just received the note that there are no changes to any banned and restricted list, and specifically in vintage, that means no additions or subtractions from the banned and restricted list, which is fine, somewhat expected. You could debate, as we have in the past, about potential unrestrictions, but there's nothing wrong with no action right now. But there was an interesting outcome that came from the announcement today, and that was some <laughs> some Twitter users reached out when Aaron Forsyth was tweeting about no changes specifically in Modern, because he was reacting to the fact that Jace the Mind Sculptor and Bloodbraid Elf have not run amok in Modern, thanks to the recent completion of a GP. With, no, with none of those cards in the top eight. But specifically, someone brought up why nothing has been done in Vintage. And Steve, you found Aaron's responses to be a little lacking and worthy of comment. <laughs> so what do you think? Well, this just to back up a little bit and provide more, even more context than you did, someone replied to Aaron saying, quote, have you looked at Vintage lately? I think the format would be a lot healthier if you just re-restricted Misha's Workshop. Of course, I've only been saying that for 11 years. How many other artifacts we need to restrict before you restrict Misha's Workshop? <laughs> and you can parse that or take that however, in whatever manner or uh, way you'd like. But what actually matters is Aaron's response. It's a little bit unusual to get a direct response from Aaron on something that controversial. But he said, quote, it's one of the pillars of the format and, it, and makes it unique and players tolerate slash love. It's like Brainstorm in Legacy. And here's the really interesting part. Every saturation metric we could ever invent would point to it being banned, but people love it. Transgressive stuff needs a place to live. Hmm. Well, now, I think we could kind of like parse this a little bit and kind of take this apart. But the big picture interesting thing is that you know, all the comments that come from the DCI about why cards are restricted or not, or what cards they're considering, are pretty carefully thought through. Mm-hmm. I think it's a little bit dangerous for Aaron to kind of use use social media to speak extemporaneously about something this this controversial and sem- and sensitive and polemical. Um, so it's a little interesting that he would come out and say this um, rather than speaking on behalf of the DCI, and he sometimes does, right? Right. Um, but what do you make of this comment? Well, it to me it speaks to a sort of hmm, it, it feels like they're just giving up on. Vintage and workshops. I mean, you and I have covered the issue for quite a while and in about as much detail as you possibly can. And we've reached a number of different conclusions that are different from this (laughs) conclusion on the part of Aaron and and Watsi, apparently. But the big takeaway for me is that it speaks to a philosophy of this problem is okay. There is a problem. (laughs) It's, you know, there's an implicit acknowledgement of a problem, and that problem is okay which is not a position I can really get behind. Interesting. I think that's a fair reading. I, I, I think, though, that the quote-unquote problem is, is – I think this issue is so complicated that the articulation or problem definition issue is actually far from resolved. So if we separate the question of whether there's a problem from the question of whether there should be a response, I don't actually think there is consensus that there is a problem. 
Well, I think that it, there it, is a lot of evidence to support the, yeah. the conclusion there's a problem, but I don't think it's quite reached a kind of universal consensus. But I agree. I am referring specifically to what Aaron said, though. He said right. two, there's two different allusions to it. <laughs> One is that players tolerate it, meaning that's allusion yeah. to a problem. The other is that every saturation metric we could ever invent would point to it being banned. So that was, I mean, that he's, was, yeah. he is in two different ways acknowledged there's a problem. A problem from the player's perspective and a problem from a, an, an objective metrics DCI perspective. DCI poli- yeah. policy, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, so I was looking at the latest um, Vintage Challenge results that Matt Murray um, and some other folks and Ryan have put together. And the March results, there were five vintage challenges. And the metagame breakdown was workshops were 30.2%, which, by the way, a couple shows ago, or maybe a little <laughs> bit more than a, a couple, yeah. I, I had predicted that the restriction of Thorn would cause shops to drop. And I gave a range, right? It was from 45%. I said, I don't think they'll drop below 30%. Mm-hmm. And that's just where they're sitting, right? Yep. Right, The average of 30%. And their match win percentage for March was 55% which was about the best in, in vintage. So the metagame breakdown in the um, in the five challenge the five challenges which included 235 players all told was 30.2% shops, 16.2% Xerox decks, 13.6% paradox, 10% oath, and then 8.5% dredge. The next was blue control at 7.2%. So shops was tw- about twice as prevalent as the next archetype. Mm-hmm. And it had sign- and it was the best performing deck that was over more than three percent of the metagame <laughs> you know so performing meaning match win percentage specifically match win percentage okay. i didn't look at top eight appearances here and obviously top eight is a function of metagame percentage and match win so but match win is actually a really interesting metric it's actually a very precise metric right right for winning and, and it's much better in, in some sense than top eight because the top eight is a more indirect way of measuring match win percentage. Um, so here's the question, right? When Aaron says, quote, every saturation metric we could ever invent would point to it being banned. First of all, he obviously means restricted. And <laughs> right. number two, number two, um, 30% is not really, a, it's kind of the borderline of saturation metrics. So I'm not really sure what he's getting at there, right? And 55% win percentage is really high and it's really hard to achieve. But it's not as bad as 60% or 61% or 59%, which we've seen in the past, in fact, last summer, right, when shops got restricted. So I think it's actually a borderline. I mean, look, <laughs> last fall, I thought workshop something should happen for sure. And I even after the Vintage Championship, I thought something should happen for sure. But the case since the Vintage Championship has not been overwhelming. Yeah. And so I think there's a I, – I don't really agree <laughs> – the funny part is, as much as I disagree with almost everything he says here, in the other direction, towards the other conclusion of maybe doing something about workshops, that is actually the point I would disagree with him that cuts the other direction. <laughs> I don't think it's true to say every saturation metric they could invent. They could invent. It's it's just not supported by the evidence. I I think the only fair way to put it is that that the percentage of the metagame and the win percentage is consistently. Um, in the range where it would be a reasonable, a reasonable restriction, but it's certainly not to to the level of every metric they could ever invent. That I mean, <laughs> right? That's just not true. Well, uh, it's it's pretty clear that he's being a, a little glib, right? And he also might not be referring to right now. In fact, 
my instincts tell me that given how much attention they pay to vintage, there's actually no way he's referring to right now. He's making a more circumspect, glib statement about the history of vintage, at least for the last five to 10 years, right? And so, and it all comes around to the fact that he's just, you know, he's speaking from a standpoint of a little bit of flippancy and a little bit of historical perspective. I mean, I think what he's alluding to is, uh. it, you know, in some reasonable world, workshops would have been restricted at multiple points in the past, <laughs> thanks to multiple different metrics. That's how I read yeah, that. Yeah, but he didn't say multiple metrics. He said saturation well, metric. He said, saturation can only mean one of two things. Yeah. It can mean percentage of the metagame and percentage of top eights, right? Uh, yeah, Saturation, fair. there's no other way to metaphorically apply that that I can think of. So, I, <laughs> I don't know. That's just really hard to... Uh, it's hard to know how to make sense of that. I mean, I'm obviously, in the big picture, they're saying... There's, he, uh, the big picture, he's saying, you might be right. This is a card that is prob- maybe a problem, or I guess he's saying is a problem. But we're kind of going to exempt it, right? Yeah. And my, so I replied this morning and I said, quote, I replied directly to him and the person who made the original prompt, quote, factoring community preferences and banned and restricted list management is understandable. But categorical, categorical exemptions for pillar status is slippy business. <laughs> Let me try yeah. that again. But categorical exemptions for pillar status is slippery business. It's hard to see how Gush was less of a pillar than shop in statistical format uniqueness, or community terms. And what I meant by that is that the idea of defining something, quote, as a pillar of the format is really difficult to do because what is it that you use to determine whether something's a pillar of the format? To me, it seems only one of two criteria. One, something's current place and presence and prevalence in the metagame, right? And number two, something's place in relation to its history, Yeah. right? There's no other reasonable way, I think, of interpreting what a pillar of the format is. But there's a couple of problems with a categorical exemption for pillar of the format. Number one, as I said, how do you distinguish between something that's a pillar of the format that deserves exemption and something that doesn't? Right. Right? And so I gave an example of Gush. (laughs) How is Gush less of a pillar in terms of format uniqueness? It's only legal and vintage as an unrestricted card, or was, right? Right. Or even legal at all. (laughs) Right. Right. it certainly had larger statistical performances at certain points when it was unrestricted than shops. And it's a beloved by large parts of the community and also hated by large parts of the community. Right. So how is that less of a, a pillar of the format that it didn't get this kind of you know ex- special exemption? But I'm not really trying to focus on gush. I'm trying to draw attention to the fact that how do you draw line draw or hair split between the cards that get that exemption and cards that don't? I think the point is that pillar of the format is a really slippery term. Cards that were pillars of the format five years ago are no longer pillars of the format, like Mana Drain. Yep. Dark so Ritual. It seems, yeah, it seems to me really dangerous business to start drawing lines around certain cards because they're a pillar of the format. Either a card is deserving of restriction or it's not. <laughs> now, Evan said to me, one of those cards costs seven and the other costs 1200 plus. You're restricting $3,600 worth of cards and value from everyone who owns them, plus it would make their value plummet, inducing ire, another ire-inducing move. Not saying you don't have a point, just saying there are other factors involved, in my opinion. Rich Shea said that he completely agreed with, um, with Evan's comment and appreciated it. I replied and I said this. I said, that's even more dangerous than determining what is a pillar. Factoring in the secondary market value of cards has an obvious entrenched card effect, and using it as a factor or tiebreaker has a predictable bias towards the status quo as does determining what's a pillar of the format. I mean, both whether you consider secondary market or pillar of the format, in some sense, it's a paradoxical argument because you're saying 
If something gets to be a large enough part of the format, it can't be restricted, either because of its value or because of its presence. Yet that's precisely the grounds, the most valid grounds in which you restrict, right? So isn't that a logical contradiction, Kevin? Uh, yeah, I think it is. I think it is, but it's <laughs> it, but the the dollar position. Let's hold on, the, do- the dollar value yeah, position sorry. is not entirely a logical one. It's also an emotional one. Yes, but Bannon restricted. So and so, but so is the pillar of the format, right? Because yes, you're saying that, that you, yeah. Now, before you mention, I just wanted to say that I, I also thought that that Evan overstated the problem. He said that they would plummet in value or value plummet, and I and we both talked about this in the past. But talking with some dealers, if workshop were restricted, we projected a twenty percent drop in the short run. Right. Both because one of it would be very powerful in vintage still in O'Brien school decks. And number two, it's played in old school and coveted by collectors. It's a reserved list rare. So it's not like it's not like Workshop would go from whatever it is to zero. It would still be worth hundreds of dollars. <laughs> yeah. We, we both predicted that if Workshop were restricted, you would still play plenty of those kinds of decks with one Workshop. Yeah. Wouldn't even... Uh, so I think that was greatly overstated. I did want to, you know, point out a couple of other responses, though, to, um, to Aaron. Some so um, Eric Froelich said he was basically unhappy in the vin- the format right now. Randy Bueller said, "quote I don't mind quote the pillar of the format argument, but it is was time to throw another restriction at it. Vintage isn't in a great spot right now, in my opinion, and Sphere of Resistance would be my target." Uh, Rich Shea then res- responded saying, "I think Re- Revoker would be a better target, but would not be unhappy to see both go. This would make Shop an aggro deck, not unlike Modern Affinity. I think that could be a very healthy deck for the format." Um, and then Sam Black. Well, let me before I get to Sam Black's comments. Let me just say, what, what do you well, what do you make of that? And then I'll I'll share my response. What do you make of <laughs> R- Randy and Rich's suggestions? Uh, we're we're retreading old ground, right? That yeah. there's, there's nothing that that's being said here that hasn't been said before, except for with the potential exception of Aaron's original statements. In in that they're coming from him, but Evan's comments are ones that we've heard before. Rich Shea's comments are ones that we've heard before. Uh, Randy's comments, you know, that there's there's kind of no news here. It's just people retreading old ground. Yeah, well, and it's people revealing their personal preferences, right? I mean, as soon as as soon as you start making a statement like "I have no problem with this argument," <laughs> then that you know alarm bells should go off. This is you're, you're talking about personal preference at this point, and I'm not I'm not calling out Randy for that. I mean, we, we all are guilty of that in one way or another, but it's just emblematic of how old this issue is how well trodden it is and how (laughs) we're probably not going to change anyone's mind here in the middle of this conversation and how everyone kind of trots out the same line that their perspective i I, i'm i just really would be kind of unhappy if sphere was restricted simply because i think sphere is an important card for the format and if sphere is restricted then all the spheres are restricted except for thalia yeah you know and and that that to me is that the taxing effects, all the artifact taxing effects, would be restricted, and I, I don't think that would be where we really want to be. I think, I think you need to have one of them around. Um, I would prefer. Uh, I've leaned in recent months towards Ravager. I think Ravager is the card you pinpoint to kind of weaken the weak, slow and weaken the the workshop deck. But I, I think Revoker is a reasonable card as well. Right. Um, the last part of this conversation that I think is really interesting and worth discussing is Sam Black. So he said, people who are invested in the format are invested in it because it is the format. So there's a little bit of circular logic there. But he <laughs> said, no way of knowing how many people it's keeping out. That's the important point, yeah. right? Aaron responds and said, very true. But at this point, Vintage and Legacy are managed 100%. He's, well, he has a roughly 100% in, 
for the people that do play it. Yeah. That is a really interesting comment because I've always assumed, and I don't think unreasonably, that the whole point is of vintage is that, that you manage the format to promote strategic diversity. So what does it mean if if you're saying you're managing it for <laughs> for people who play it, <laughs> then does that give a, does that just reinforce the danger of making it 100% entrenched effect status quo? And why then was Gush restricted, right? If we're just going to make it about it, allowing people to enjoy the decks that they're already playing, then, you know, <laughs> I, what what does that mean for the health of the format? I, I think you can read that statement a, a lot of ways. For the people that do play it, meaning to me that the the community's perspective on the format is maybe given more importance than it would for another format. So... For example, if there's a bunch of people, 30% of the format or more, who are still willing to play workshops, even if a large other bunch of people don't like the card or the deck, then it's just a kind of a you can't please them all sort of situation. So if people are willing to play this deck, we'll just let them have it. <laughs> uh, similarly, if if a whole bunch of people complain about Gush and think that it's that it's causing the problem with the format vis-a-vis workshop dominance, then, hey, let's let's just yeah. let Gush get the axe again. I just feel but like this, this statement yeah. is a mishmash of people have their decks that they're like, which is something you said a moment ago. People have cards that they hate or complain about, which gives that more weight in, in restricted decisions. And people have pillars of the format that they love. So let's not get rid of one. I mean, but this goes, I think it points th- in all different directions. Yeah, it, there's, it's... I think we have to be very careful, though. I think we really have to tease out these differences, and it's, it's getting really slippery. Well, I know, but we're speculating but, at, at best, right? I mean, we don't know what Aaron meant. It's just, to me, it could mean a lot of things. But all the, almost all those meanings, I think what's most problematic about it is that they, they it's totally subjective. It's like, th- from his perspective, he's really throwing out a kind of objective approach to managing the format. And, you know, whether you're talking about the secondary market, whether you're talking about defining the pillar of the format or just serving an existing player base, you're essentially all of those, all three of those things have a built-in bias towards the status quo. And even worse, they encourage and ratify factionalism (laughs) where people identify not just in terms of schools of magic, but in terms of factions that are ident- that kind of wrap themselves up in those schools and those strategies. And then people lobby the DCI based upon their particular faction rather than the broader good. That is the problem because he's saying, so if we're saying Workshop is the pillar of the format, then every other p- quote pillar of the format can defend its existence via its player support, via its supporters, right, through that status. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see your point. That is super dangerous. So I, I, I think that there's a real... It's. I mean, this is the the fundamental problem is that if you are a longtime workshop player, and this this started a couple years ago, where people are like, we need to start restricting not based upon format diversity or balance, but we need to start restricting in a way that's fair and equitable across the format. <laughs> so even if statistically, like one card is the only card that needs restriction, to be fair, we have to restrict a card from blue deck, we have to restrict dark petition from combo, just to, out of equity, right? But that goes runs. That only makes sense if you're in a logic framework where people are. It's like a political party system, right? Where you have to treat people equally among different parties. It's not about who holds power and who doesn't. So it becomes a matter of factionalism and lobbying, mm-hmm. which is ev- 
everything that he says encourages, which is the worst impulse in the format. So I'm just disappointed with this on multiple levels. So it, it's it's not about, I think you're putting it into an analytical frame. It's about how does this actually play out in terms of what it encourages in terms of future behavior? Yeah, I see your point. And I agree. I I, I don't believe that I was doing what you just said. <laughs> I think that I was you know, encompassing all of the problems you just described in all the different meanings of this statement. When you manage yeah. for the people and not for the format, then yeah, you end up with this factionalism you described. You end up with people having pet yes. decks. You end up with statements like pillar yes. of the format. It's it has it, all of those yeah. problems all tied up into one little concept of hey, for the people, by the people, you know. But but when the DCI makes decisions now and he's acknowledged that, then it's no longer in the business of looking at data yeah. or statistics or win percentage. I agree. It's now in the business now it's it's now in the business of resolving internecine disputes. Yeah. I agree. Between community factions. I think we've been in this position it's, for a while now, right? I mean, this is not news to we, me. Well, <laughs> what a cynic. Well, I mean, but... Look at this guy. No, me, you and I have addressed this issue head on for the last yeah. several banner-restricted yes. you know, concepts, and that is talking but, about people complaining <laughs> on social media, talking about misperceptions but, about the nature of the format, talking about misperceptions of dominance, talking about misperceptions of... Um, of tertiary effects like hey if we restrict mental misstep then shops are going to be you know tamped down you and i have addressed all of these issues head on yeah but there's a big difference and the big difference is that it's always been subterranean no one from the dci or member of the dci has come out and essentially said yeah that's the case uh yeah okay they've always they've always put on a face a mask that they are concerned about promoting diversity, the health of the format, blah blah blah. Yeah, but it but it has shown through. It's, not, it's true. It has it has shown th- what you're talking about is is true to a point, but it has shown through in a number of times, right? You remember you remember the one statement? I think it was Forsyth wrote something to the effect of the problem seems to be this. <laughs> you remember? I think that was no, about the gush restriction at the time. The the problem it was about the gush restriction. Now that I think about it, it was some some wishy washy statement about the problems seems to be that this deck can play too many spells for free. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what they said is that the free spells make mentor too good. I, I know, but but, that's, but that's, that's, that, referring specifically that's to the not, language, though the language alludes to this problem of well, how does it? How do you seem to have a look, problem? The only way you can possibly seem to have a problem is if you're using a, a subjective measure. Right. Look, here's here, there's when you think about policy, there's three steps. First, you have to decide there's a problem, right? Yeah. And people can disagree as to whether there's a problem or not. The second, you have to decide whether there's a problem, whether there's a problem that merits a policy response. Now, good faith policymakers can can agree that there's a problem and disagree whether the policymaking entity should intervene, mm-hmm, right. whether they have the power to do so and whether they should. I mean, a good example of this is that, or maybe a bad example of this, depending on your politics, is you know. There are actually legislators in the United States who don't who while they think climate change is a problem, they don't think we should do anything about it, right? So so there are, you have to have not only agreement that there's a problem, but then agreement that there's a policy response needed. And the third step is that you have to have consensus on what the appropriate and legitimate and proportional and well-tailored policy response is. And I think that I think what you're getting tripped up in is the third step. And what I'm getting tripped up on is the second step, or maybe the first step. Okay. I think that I think what you just articulated is a third step problem. In the case in the case of the gush restriction, the DCI said there was a problem that they, it merited a response, and the way that they justified their solution, and I think the particular solution that they 
presented, I think we both agree was wrong. But I don't think. But they didn't come out and say that there wasn't a problem, or that the there didn't there wasn't an appro- that there it did not merit a policy response. I think they got tripped up on the third. I think what's happening now is that Aaron's comments bring into question whether and wh- whether there will be a problem and what are the legit what's legit what the legitimate grounds for a policy response. Yeah. So I think it's a step separate problem step. Well, I agree with you that it's noteworthy in its in its statement and its its um what's the word kind of out of the normal protocol. Yeah, the, the, <laughs> kind of the blatant specificity of I mean, it's, it's not a specific <laughs> well statement, put. but the the blatant specificity of admitting that hey, we're managing this format in a different way than exactly. we would manage any other format, I guess. Or that they have formally acknowledged it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that they have so been, I guess yeah. the blatantness is is noteworthy, but the message, to repeat myself, the message is not news to me, right? So well, yeah, but, I guess uh, but, I am I mean, just to clarify, about the whole thing. You agree thing. with me. Yeah, you, you are. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and I have not. But I, I just think that the difference is that, again, and you agree with it, but you, you had a, like a big but after, you know, yes, but. <laughs> I, re- I really think it makes a difference. If you're a policymaker... You know, like let's just look. Like let's pretend I'm a Supreme Court justice, mm-hmm. right? And I go into the, I hear oral argument. And I go into conference. and I say I'm gonna, I'm gonna side with the, I'm gonna side with the, um, the respondents, right? And I just couldn't stand the attorney. I thought he was, you know, full of BS. I, I hate their argument, whatever, right? You still have to put it into a formal opinion <laughs> where you articulate your reasoning in a formal way, using precedent, rule of law, and so on, right? right. And kind of what they've done is like published the conference report, right? Like, Or one member of the DCI is now coming out and framing things in, in a way that is not the formal protocol for the DCI. And I think the what he said is is problematic because it engenders the worst kind of behavioral response. I'll agree with that. Yeah, definitely. I think this is problematic, but at the same time, yeah, my pessimism overrides the the my interest in this, honestly. <laughs> this is, is what I would say. It sounds crappy to say, I know, but that's the truth of my position is that yeah, I had kind of given up on on, on a well a fully well-reasoned management of the format that doesn't that isn't heavily swayed by public opinion. And I also would point out that vintage is not the only format that suffers from this. The last few years of Wizards policy in a number of senses, banner restricted policy, but also simple format management policies like set releases and, and legality cycle in, in standard. A lot of different decisions in the last several years have been subject to just community backlash and, and Wizards backpedaling. I think it's I think it's become part of the like culture. What? I I don't want to dredge up a bunch of examples here, but there okay. there was the the pacing of set releases and how and the rotation in standard, which was announced one way and then they backpedaled and caused a whole bunch of problems actually for standard for months because they were cards were legal that were never intended to be legal together because they had decided under one paradigm and then just reset things. That was part of the problem with Aetherflux Reservoir and the Eldrazi, for example, cards that were designed and not intended to ever be played together. And then there was the issue of uh, banner restricted policy as pertains to the Felidar Sovereign combo in standard. That one went back and forth and, again, subject to a great deal of social media input. I just think that I- I'm not trying to <laughs> – and this, this sounds like all I'm saying is this is the norm for them. What I'm pointing out is that this is not uncommon, and I think that might be a cultural element for Wizards to say, hey, look, we, we don't want to put the energy into managing this vintage format. Let, let's just manage it for what people think they want, right? 
which is not an unreasonable position to, 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 to take if you're inundated with all kinds of other responsibilities that are far more high volume, like managing standard, which is their day job, right? <laughs> God, you're such a cynic. I mean, <laughs> if I was in Forsyth's position, I probably would not have said what he said. Right. But right. I would probably feel the way he feels. And that is, this is a tiny niche format. These people complain really loudly. A couple of them complain really loudly when something's weird. And it's, and I don't, I'm not close enough to understand all the ins and outs of it. So I'm just going to monitor what people say and try to make the most people happy I can. I just view that as a gross breach of, proto- of protocol for the DCI. And I think that what he did, is going to make things worse in the future. Well, I'm, because I don't disagree kind of, with you. It would, I mean, even put it in more crass terms, it would be like if the Supreme Court had struck something down because they didn't like the politician as opposed to the policy, <laughs> right? I mean, it's just, it's just the worst kind of, like, partisanship encourages it. And anyway, it just, it, it, it ultimately delegitimizes the DCI. It does real damage. Real damage, actually. Yeah, it does, but it also does it to a, a small population of people, right? That's... That's the flip yeah. side is you, you, when you have such enormous responsibility as millions of players playing your preferred formats, which are standard and, and limited, right? Then you can accept a little bit of this delegitimacy, as you put it, if it only affects... Or at least it doesn't. You know, it just doesn't seem de- neutral. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean... Okay, well... So a stimulating discussion <laughs> do- yeah. actually doesn't let's, change too much for me. And... uh but I'd be interested to hear what our audience thinks about the results here and the practical implications of what Aaron has said. Because I think, as you've described, there are many practical implications of this. And it's something that we've been struggling with for a while now, and it's not going to go away. And I think it just means that you and I need to redouble our efforts in a couple of cases in the near future to make sure that we hold the DCI to task for using evidence-based decision-making and policy-making. Agreed. Agreed. Well, we've got a great set ahead, so don't get discouraged by Kevin's cynicism on this topic <laughs> or my disappointment. But uh, we've got we've got a great a great show. Well, as you know, this is our set review time, and it wouldn't be a set review without our report card. So let's see how we did with Rivals of Ixalan. So for Rivals of Ixalan, like most sets, we had a number of cards that were predicted zero and actually zero across the board. So for the likes of Mastermind's Acquisition, Merfolk, Mistbinder, Thrashing, Brontodon, Azor's Gateway, Release to the Wind, Storm the Vault, Flood of Recollection, and Silent Gravestone, that was the case. None of those cards showed up in any top eights. The rest, though, have some interesting things to discuss, because these are the ones where we actually predicted some play, and we'll see what happened. So first up is The Immortal Sun. Steve, you predicted zero. I predicted one. The actual was two. Huh. Two top eights for Immortal Sun in workshop decks online. And so that one goes down for a win for me. I don't think this card is taking the format by storm or anything. Our predictions and discussion, I think, were pretty collectively spot yeah, on. Yeah, I had, I had noted that I'd seen someone uh, who I think had perhaps even made the finals of one of the Power Nine, uh, the Vintage Challenges, say that uh, it was pretty good in the workshop mirror. Uh, but, um, well, it's a six mana artifact that does a lot, so I could yep. see that, <laughs> but, uh, we haven't seen a lot of them. So oh. it's, uh, so that one goes down as a win for me. And with a variance of one, their prediction was pretty spot on. <laughs> 
Less so for the next one. Next is induced amnesia. Steve, you predicted three. I predicted zero. The result was zero. Yeah, it's sad. I don't think either one of us is terribly surprised. In our, We did a really detailed, comprehensive, exhaustive mm-hmm. analysis. And I think what we concluded was that the card requires quite a bit of setup. You're not getting a lot of advantage in the first iteration. You kind of get multiple, have to get multiple of them down before you really start reaping profit. And that's just a lot of work. And unless someone's actually doing the work, you're not going to get a lot of, you know, it's, it doesn't seem to go, yeah. it's not going to go very far. I'll have to keep an eye on it. Uh, did anyone actually? Did anyone actually yeah, try well, it? Rich Shea did go undefeated in a league with Induced Amnesia in his deck, but I would describe the deck in question as not very much an Induced Amnesia deck, but he was trying it in kind of another shell. So, Got yeah, it. no activity there, but we'll keep an eye out for the Amnesia. Next is Blood Sun. Steve, you predicted two. I predicted one. The actual was zero, unfortunately. Although, again, it did make <laughs> multiple appearances in undefeated league decks but has not broken through in the challenges or in paper. Such a fascinating card. It, it's hard to believe that it's been three or four months since we spoiled it. It just <laughs> seems so fresh. But, I mean, it's also just a really interesting card. And I'm a little bit surprised that it hasn't seen well, a little bit more play. I kind of agree with you but in the sense that I think it has a role to play in many matchups, and it just doesn't have the right home, so to speak, at this point. But we should n- definitely not lose track of Blood Sun in the long term. Next is Direfleet Daredevil. Steve, you predicted one. I predicted zero. The actual was exactly one. <laughs> and where where was this lone Daredevil? <laughs> I don't have hiding? it in front of me at the moment, but I remember thinking that this one squeaked. <laughs> okay. through. This is your this is your one win for our report card here, and it squeaked through. I think it was in a seventeen person tournament. Uh, <laughs> uh, I actually I think the Direfleet Daredevil is just a fine card. Again, it's kind of without a home at this point, and. It's competing with some some very powerful magic cards at that slot and for that effect. So I think our prediction was pretty spot on. True. I remember, I recall facing it or encountering it in one some match mm-hmm. online a couple months ago. And it was pretty yeah. good. It was pretty effective in that moment. Well, last but not least, I saved the best for last. We have Azakama Primal Calamity. Steve, you predicted zero. I predicted two. The actual was exactly two. In this case, both yeah, Good both, wins both for you. Uh, appearances were in main decks in Oath, as we discussed. I thought it would be more of a sideboard card, but it still gets the job done in the main deck, especially when workshops are so dominant. So do you recall if it showed up in a Brian Kelly-style Oath or uh, something it's closer different? to one of the Gristlebrand show-and-tell kinds of versions. Obviously, Zakama would be, aside from Emrakul, the most expensive Oath creature in regular circulation. Yeah. Yeah, it's not exactly a card you're going to be able to hard cast, even with the yeah, Brian exactly. Kelly mana base. You'd have to already be Bomberman comboing to cast it if you wanted to do that. <laughs> <laughs> so at any rate, that goes down. If you're keeping track at home, it goes down as four, no, three wins for me, one win for Steve, and one where we both lost, which is Blood Sun. But the largest variance from all of those predictions, you know, from the actual to the closest person was one. The, <laughs> yeah, the furthest we got away from our predictions was one. Yeah, the margin for error yeah. is tiny. So, we had one. We're slicing. I know, we had one, close. you know, so to speak, loss in terms of blood sun, which neither of us got right. But for the rest of them, we were all within one, and that's that's pretty good. Well, hopefully, we'll do even better so this time. I would like to summarize by pointing out that there, uh, we predicted, you know, between the two of us, we predicted appearances for five cards in Rivals of Ixalan, and the results showed only three. 
two Immortal Sons, one Dire Fleet Daredevil, two Zakama Primal Calamity. It's pretty interesting that in the modern age of vintage that the three cards that see play out of the set are a giant dinosaur, <laughs> a red <laughs> pirate that you know steals cards out of your opponent's graveyards, and a six-mana artifact. <laughs> the sign of the times, Kevin. These are the times well, we live in. <laughs> now, uh, Rivals of Ixlon has, has great potential, but has certainly yeah, not lived up yeah. to it thus far. So let's see what we think about Dominaria. As we like to do with every new set, we like to discuss the mechanics that are introduced that are new with the set and possibly returning. And Dominaria does not disappoint in this regard. So in addition to the set just being uh, dripping with flavor and nostalgia, there are several mechanical and keyword updates, some of them kind of monumental. And so... Well, we'll- Kevin, could, could I ask you to begin, or, or and I'll, I'll chip in as well, just step back and describe what is Dominaria. This is a this is a really unique set, right? Yeah, this well, is not a run of the mill expansion. That's right. This is a return to Magic's roots because Dominaria was the original plane on which the story of Magic was established. the The first few sets all existed on Dominaria, and some of the many of the key legends, for example, that were introduced in Legends were characters from Dominaria. And then as the game spread out, it talked about the history of the plane. And so we've got the Ice Age, for example, which is an incredibly momentous time period in the history of the plane. And some of the sets after Ice Age, like Mirage, took place on specific areas of Dominaria. And then the the big cycle, the first major multi-set, multi-block cycle in terms of magic story kicked off with the story of the Weatherlight and its crew. And how some of them were descended from Urza himself and that line, but also Urza's machinations that were started in the Old Brothers War that was reflected in Antiquities and how they fought against the Phyrexians and the Phyrexian invasion, which has become so critical throughout Magic's history. It's just the first several blocks and sets of Magic took place on Dominaria and talked about its history. And then the story started to travel to other planes. And these other planes have been the default for the last several years and sets and decades even, that such that we haven't been back to Dominaria and had a Dominaria-focused set in quite a while. So now this set returns to the plane, returns to certain characters, some old, some new, certain bloodlines and certain legendary artifacts and, and vehicles that are had their origins and their roots in, in Magic's beginnings. The set also is stunningly beautiful. True, very true. It they 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 made an obvious um, focused effort to to design a set that is you know I I think Ethan Fleischer used the term resonant fantasy <laughs> as a in in contraposing that to um, what I think he called uh, nostalgia wallowing. Now <laughs> I don't know about you, Kevin, but I'm all for wallowing in nostalgia. Uh, <laughs> I I'm a nostalgia hog, but uh, I think this set is it really is beautiful to look at in the way that alpha in many of the respects that alpha is beautiful to look at now of course the borders are different the tonal patterns are different but Mm -hmm. the imagery 
the imagery is simplified and beautiful and straightforward on almost all the cards. It's just beautiful. Well, I couldn't agree more. And I would describe the the feel of the set, both aesthetically and mechanically, and just from an overall design standpoint, to be the best possible intersection of old and new. It, right. It has many, many themes that are carried over from a design standpoint from Alpha. It has many, many characters and mechanical uh, things in common with Alpha. But the quality of design, the quality of art, the quality of the cards and aesthetic choices and things are all very modern. And there's a lot of mechanical updates that are very modern that fix issues from the past. And there's a lot of mechanical nods to the whole history of magic. Right. And not, not just mechanical. No yeah, but the, all, the yeah, all kinds reprints, of nods. Yeah. There's reprints throughout the, the, the history of the game. You know, cards like Juggernaut are here, Icy Manipulator. Yep. Um, the Weatherlight <laughs> yep. ship in a vehicle form returns. There's also, you know re-envisioned and new versions of older cards like Daragaz is back. Um, Joyra, yeah. But there's also just, I mean, and and folks don't have to pull this, but cards like Forebear's Blade, really simple in design, but so evocative. Yeah. Uh, And Kevin, I don't know what you think about Blood Tallow Candle, which is not a card we will be reviewing, but it is (laughs) a card that is kind of shockingly... Uh, <laughs> throwback in a sense. Yeah. It's kind of this skull with a candle on top of it, <laughs> which has a very, a very 1993 feel to it. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, I consider this set to be oh, a rousing success from an aesthetic and design and mechanical and flavor standpoint, all of the above. Uh, and I'm looking forward to drafting it in limited too. And I'm also looking forward to playing a couple of these cards in vintage. Well, let's dive into them. So the first thing to note about dominaria is a number of mechanical additions one of the most striking ones is a new card type called the sagas sagas are meant to evoke the the telling of a story about magic's history and so they're some of the most literal references to the history of the game and its lore mechanically though a saga is an enchantment and it has what they call chapters there are symbols that uh, so First of all, we have to talk about the aesthetics of the card because functionally these cards are oriented differently than regular magic cards. The functional, the rules text is on the left side of a card, left half, and the art is on the right. So there's these wonderful tapestry style arts for all of these and they're just magnificent. But the rules text has chapters. A chapter ability is is a triggered ability effectively, but how they work is that they come into play, all sagas enter the battlefield with a lore counter on them. And then as your pre-combat main phase begins, that is immediately after you draw, you put another lore counter on it during your turn. But that doesn't use the stack, but when you add a lore counter, then it will cause one of the, the chapters on the saga to trigger. So I'm going to read a bit from the release notes here. Each symbol on the left of a saga's text box represents a chapter ability. A chapter ability is a triggered ability that triggers when a lore counter that's put on a saga causes the number of lore counters on the saga to become equal to or greater than the ability's chapter number. This is kind of like leveling from a number of sets back, right? Uh, yes, somewhat like that. Leveling tended not to have triggers. It tended to be like static abilities, but yeah. So the idea with these these sagas, and, and all of them in this set have three chapters, is you play it and chapter one happens immediately. Then on your next turn, that is to say on your next pre-combat main phase, you're going to add a lore counter to it and that will cause the next chapter to trigger. And then, once you've triggered the third chapter, so quoting again, 
here. The number of lore, once the number of lore counters on a saga is greater than or equal to the greatest number among its chapter abilities, it, in the Dominaria set, this is always three, the saga's controller sacrifices it as soon as its chapter ability has left the stack, most likely by resolving or being countered. The sacrifice is a state-based action that doesn't use the stack. So once you've done all three chapters of it and it's done resolving its third ability, you're going to sacrifice the saga. Anything that triggers off you sacrificing something or a permanent going to the graveyard would then trigger off of the saga going to the graveyard. So there's a fair bit of rules minutia here that clarifies when and what happens. But basically, the takeaway is you play it and chapter one happens right away. Then on your next two main phases, you're going to get chapters two and three for each one of these. There's a whole other card type, or that is to say combination of types, I guess you should say, in legendary spells. So this is just adding the legendary modifier that is type to a spell, but it has rules text associated with it that is very important. You can't cast a legendary sorcery unless you control a legendary creature or a legendary planeswalker. Once you begin to cast a legendary sorcery, losing control of the legend, the creature, or the planeswalker won't affect the spell, and they resolve in every other way like a regular sorcery. But in order to announce a legendary sorcery, you have to have a legendary creature or a planeswalker. And that- is there any other example of that in Magic? I feel like there is, but I can't recall of a card that you can't even announce unless some condition is met in terms of something you control and play. Well, that's interesting. So th- I'm, I'm, I'm having a trouble there- thinking about what you're thinking of, but... I mean, it kind of goes back to basic targeting. Like, you can't cast spells that don't have legal targets, for example. Well, there, there is. A, I think there's some creature, and I don't remember the name of it, but there's a creature that's like a, a, a two-mana creature that you can't play on the first, second, or third turn of the game. So that's kind oh, of an interesting yeah. example of a card that you can only play under certain conditions. But I can't think of... Certainly, there are spells you can't play just because there's no targets but i'm trying to think of an of a card that you can't play because you don't control something well um yeah you're talking about sarah avenger which works as you said there are a number of cards that are restricted to how you can cast them like the the mirror the five six mirror that you can only cast off of non-mana or non-land mana sources oh interesting yeah i don't remember that one (laughs) yeah we definitely reviewed that one what is the name of that mirror it's a two-mana, five-six mirror, so it's really huge. Mirror Superion, that's what it was. Spend only mana produced by creatures to cast Mirror Superion. <laughs> it's even more restrictive no, than I remember. it's coming back to me, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we well, that's, have that's had... Not quite, yeah, it's not quite... Yeah, yeah there, there's certainly spells that you can only play under certain conditions. Yeah. But the, but the condition, and I'm broadening it out a little bit, of, of controlling a certain type of card... Now, obviously, we've seen conditions where permanents will leave play if certain per- other permanents aren't in play like Thran, Quarry, or, or Glimmer Void. Yeah. But I can't remember anything that you couldn't cast unless you control a particular kind of permanent. That's I, interesting. I Honestly, I can't come up with another example right now either. But there, there's also a whole other uh, category of spells that you can only play during certain phases, right? Sure. So there's sure, a lot absolutely. of those. And sorceries are that by definition. <laughs> yeah, right. Definitely. <laughs> so there are, new, uh, there are additional new types of cards here. And that is historic cards. Now, this is more of a collection of types than anything else. And I'd, I haven't seen the rules, just some of the release notes on it. But a card, spell, or permanent is historic if it has the legendary super type, the artifact card type, or the saga subtype. <laughs> 
Having two of those quantities doesn't make an object more historic than any other or provide additional bonus. An object either is historic or isn't. So, legends, artifacts, and sagas, which only exist in this set so far. But from a vintage context, we have plenty of legends and artifacts to play with. All those <laughs> yeah. cards are now considered historic. That's really interesting. I mean, it's con- it conceptually makes sense, right? I mean, the whole idea of an artifact is that it's it's something that's a product of history that's been left behind and rediscovered or whatever. Mm-hmm. But um, but boy, that is kind of backward casting a long way, right? I mean, yeah, <laughs> it sure is. <laughs> I mean, you and I have long known that Black Lotus is lowercase historic, right? But now it's also uppercase <laughs> yes. historic. <laughs> So, that's a big change yeah. and it's it it takes courage to kind of implement a rules change of that magnitude i mean it re- fundamentally redefines cards from the very beginning of the game you're right that's interesting and we'll talk more about that later when we get to certain specific card evaluations so in terms of mechanics the set also brings back kicker which is unchanged and has been used a number of times so no big changes there But there is one enormous rules change that we're not going to spend a ton of time on, but damage can no longer be redirected to Planeswalkers. That is, previously, you could redirect non-combat damage that a source you control would deal to an opponent and have that source instead deal a damage to one of their Planeswalkers. I'm quoting here, with the release of Dominaria's set, of the Dominaria set, excuse me, this rule is being removed from the game. A large number of cards that dealt a certain amount of damage to target player are receiving errata using the following guidelines. Now, I'm just going to read here because this is way too complicated. Abilities that read target creature or player have been changed to any target. Abilities that read target player have been changed to target player or planeswalker. However, if the amount of damage is calculated by using information about the player or object they control, that ability remains unchanged and can now damage only the player (laughs) abilities that read target opponent have been changed to target opponent or planeswalker with the same exceptions lifted above and abilities that deal damage but don't call for a target haven't received errata with one exception which is vile smasher the fierce so steve the practical upshot of this is lightning bolt can (laughs) still kill jace the mind sculptor you just get to target jace now whereas you used to target the opponent (laughs) There's a lot more to it than that. <laughs> yeah, it, again, and I think this... The, so there's so many different things we could say about this change. Right. But the big thing that pops to my mind is the fact that cards like Lightning Bolt will now be fundamentally errated mm-hmm. to have text that the designers, the designers of Lightning Bolt could not have foreseen in their wildest imaginations <laughs> yeah interestingly in the case of lightning bolt that comes and in many cases it comes with a contraction of rules text it actually becomes shorter but more broadly applicable right which is fun <laughs> that practically speaking there's very little actual impact to this in a moment-by-moment basis in vintage gameplay walking ballista can still kill dak faden you just have to directly the targeting directly yeah yeah so it's it's worth noting too that regular combat vis-a-vis attacking a player or planeswalker is unchanged here this is all just about spell and ability targeting so yeah not much change from a vintage standpoint but there are certain corner cases like cards that weren't in a deck necessarily to deal damage to targets but still dealt damage those those cards some of them become better some of them become worse thinking for example about (laughs) the, the, the example i love from modern is the rack 
<laughs> I know that's not a vintage card, <laughs> but it's it's emblematic of the fact that the rack can no longer kill planeswalkers, basically. <laughs> Which it used to be able to. At any rate, so some momentous changes from Dominaria, both backward and forward looking, vis-a-vis historic spells and new card types and legendary spells and damage to planeswalkers. This set is making huge waves in the rules of, of magic going forward. But now let's talk about some specific cards. As we usually do, we reached out on Twitter to ask for your input on cards that we should review, and you did not disappoint. We have quite the list here, some more impactful than others, but let's dive in with one of the most popular and possibly earliest known cards, thanks to that unfortunate leak, Damping Sphere. Oh, yes. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Damping Sphere is an artifact for two that says, if a land is tapped for two or more mana, it produces... C instead of any other type and amount. Each spell a player casts costs one more to cast for each other spell that player has cast this turn. Let's separate the two uh, statements out so th- analytically yeah. so that we can attack both. And then we'll, we'll bring them back together at the end. Which would you like Wait, to begin the, with? <laughs> well, you know, what I'd like to begin with first is actually a design question. So playability notwithstanding, how do you feel about this card that has two scarcely related abilities that are is clearly just designed to be a, a hoser yeah and to, to dramatically different effects how does that make you feel well it's complicated <laughs> Granted. I, I, the the paradigmatic example of a card that just hoses in vintage and does a cluster of things which at least in the case of the card I'm about to mention, appear to be related, but nonetheless is extremely impactful as Grafdigger's Cage. And yeah. Grafdigger's Cage, as we've said in our we said in our review many years ago, does four things. <laughs> and mm-hmm. it's just multifaceted and really powerful. I've gone on record saying that I'm not particularly thrilled with cards that are designed for vintage. And one of the reasons is because I think experience has shown that when you design cards for for the format, they tend to be overpowered and over-impactful. Mm-hmm. And I think that we've gone so far in the direction of hosers and answers that it makes vintage even less vintage-y. <laughs> and I think Craftdigger's <laughs> Cage and, and a card that was designed for vintage, or at least with vintage in mind, Containment Priest, are really kind of brutal examples of that. <laughs> and, and Chalice of the Void as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I see this card, I, I certainly think, presume, <laughs> perhaps incorrectly, that it was designed with vintage in mind. And while I hope it sees play and I hope it's exciting, um, I, I can't help but feel a kind of twinge of, uh, these cards are annoying. <laughs> Rather than kind of like evolving from a free flow of creativity, kind of deconstructive this approach to attacking the format um, or some of the pillars of the format, or in this case, multiple pillars, um, mm-hmm. I tend to feel that these cards can can be more powerful than they were des- than they may have been intended to be. I, so I think they have a really high, you know, the upside is that they're likely to see play, but the downside or the danger is that they they're potentially um, smothering. Yeah, I see your point, and I don't know 
for, from smothering, but Grafdigger's Cage is the most played card in Vintage. Um, numerically, yeah. that is factually the case. And, I, and yeah. I do think there is something to be said for that being undesirable. Right. <laughs> I don't wish to restate everything you just said, but I do think there is a problem when there is a card like that that is just so omnipresent in a format. I I uh, I, I, I pinpoint Grafdigger's Cage as a pivot point in the format where, mm-hmm. you know, because it attacked Tinker and Yawgmoth's Will and Dredge and Oath, it just hoes so many strategies. I, I really think it's the card that's responsible more than anything else for the turn away from restricted, big, heavy, restricted spell decks to more homogenous, um, you know, fair, quote, fair decks. And mm-hmm. I'm not sure that that turn was for the best with the benefit of historical retrospect or hindsight. I think mm-hmm. that Vintage was more fun in some ways and more appealing when cards like Tinker and Yawgmoth's Will were played, <laughs> you know, in, in heavier, in, in more than just at the margins. And I also mm-hmm. think that the hosing of those powerful restricted cards is partly part of the reason why the token strategies and the workshop strategies became so popular that if Grafdigger's Cage had not existed, I think the kind of big blue and, and blue-black storm decks would have been able to compete on a, on a fair, uh, on a more level playing field against even the powerful mentor strategies, honestly. Yeah, well, I mean, it's fair. And unfortunately, we're, we're probably never going to know again <laughs> because Grafdigger's Cage is not the sort of card that's going to get restricted. Right. <laughs> so... So, well, yeah. let's return then also, back to wanna, Damping Sphere. I don't want to just, you know, c- complain. I, 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 I want to at least, while I'm concerned about it, I also think that, you know, the designer's willingness to step into the vintage breach is, um, is courageous. <laughs> I'll leave it at that. <laughs> well, I'd, I'd like to add some color to your conception of how this card was designed because I don't have proof of the matter. But I believe this card was probably designed more so with Modern in mind, mm. where the impacted decks are Tron and Storm. And I, I, don't, pur- I don't purport to know the proportion of design thought that was given to the matter, but it could have been that the vintage impact was gravy or you know, almost entirely gravy, whereas Modern is obviously far closer to R&D's day-in and day-out design mindset. I don't I don't say that to dissuade anything you just said because obviously even in the modern context everything you just said still applies in the sense that this card is clearly a scalpel designed <laughs> to affect meta games and there's no way around it. So, let's return then to dissecting this scalpel to fully well, mix my metaphor. Well, we well we can begin by just obviously noting that two-mana artifacts are certainly playable in Vintage. In fact, that's kind of a sweet spot (laughs) for Vintage play. So let's begin with the first statement, just to take things in order. Um, If a land is tapped for two or more mana, it produces colorless, or as you said, C instead of any other type and amount. So what are the lands that this would apply to in the first place? Now, the most obvious example is Mishra's Workshop, (laughs) but Mm -hmm. it also applies to Talarian Academy, it applies to Ancient Tomb, City of Traders, which sees less play, and potentially in the case of Eldrazi, uh, Eldrazi Temple. It would mm-hmm. not affect lands that can generate, let's call, indirectly generate mana like Eye of Ugin. Um, right. But those are the main lands. Are there any other lands that generate multiple 
mana that I'm missing. I mean, there are certainly ones that exist but don't see play in Vintage, like Lotus Veil. Um, but other other that I'm missing? Not that see any kind of consistent play, no. The only other thing I can think of is... <laughs> boy. No, I, I'm sorry. I can't think of another good example that's seen play lately. So the practical effect is if you get this in play, let's say you're on the play and you play Mox Land this, um, your workshop opponent, the most that they can do next turn is play uh, Moxen and land to cast their spells. They, they, you know, if they if they play a, a workshop or an ancient tomb or a city of traders, they will be unable to uh, use it to uh, fuel a, a big threat. Um, mm-hmm. Now, you know, it's not unlikely for a, a workshop player to have a mox or or two, um, so they could still play. Uh, this is not a card that sees a lot of play, but a metal worker or a card that does see more play, a turn one foundry inspector. Um, but I do think it. I do think it's pretty powerful in that context, Kevin. I think being able to, you know, there are many workshop hands where a workshop player will keep the hand on the basis of a Mishra's workshop, right? Right. And if you right. and 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 they might not have any moxen at all. And if you play this on turn one, they might not be able to do anything, you know, until turn two when they maybe are playing a two mana card like a Ravager or a Revoker or a Steel Overseer. Uh, just fundamentally, we're not even just yeah. not even getting into the tactics of it, the st- strategy of it. We're just at a fundamental level in terms of curving out. <laughs> you're yeah. going to be really dramatically slowing a workshop's game plan. And let's not forget how structurally modern workshops are built around Foundry Inspector, which is in- almost entirely reliant on Workshop and Ancient Tomb to be played on, on, on the first schedule. Turn. Yeah, it's not impossible, of course, via Mana Crypt, etc. But th- you know, far more often. Uh, inspector is played off of a workshop and then a mox casts a ravager and that's part of the primary structure of how modern workshop aggro is built now and this dramatically impacts that right now on the draw obviously it's not nearly as powerful but i still think there's something to be said for it so for example if your opponent goes let's say workshop and let's say not foundry inspector but let's say um uh Let's just say they go Ancient Tomb or Workshop into either one one creature or two creatures. So okay. any of the or you know let's just stick with creatures and then we'll go to to spheres. But let's say they yeah. go you know Workshop. Let's say Steel Overseer, Mox, and a Ravager. Okay. okay. Um, then and you play this next turn. At most they will have three mana unless they draw another Artifact Accelerant. Um, mm-hmm. Which depending on what happens. That can still slow them significantly. And with Wastelands, if you play, you know, Damping Sphere and then follow it with Wastelands, you can really put them in a hole. Now, where things get really interesting is if your opponent goes turn one Sphere and then you play this and they hope that their soul lands or their shops create asymmetry, then they're in big trouble. Yeah, that's a good point. Because the spheres then are completely symmetrical <laughs> um, and... Now, I'm, it's absolutely the case that the workshop decks are designed really low to the ground these days, um, which means that they can function off of two mana, but the workshop player is not likely to get a lot more than two or three mana. I'd, and I'd like to challenge you a little bit on that, just because they're low to the ground, but they have no one-drops. Right. Right. So as soon as a Damping Sphere and a Sphere of Resistance are in play, then your Xerox deck filled with preordains and lightning bolts and swords to plowshares <laughs> is actually advantaged yeah right those spells cost two whereas ravager costs three 
So it's a it, it does more than just even the playing field. It actually swings things back in favor of decks that have a, an actual low mana curve. Right, and you're taking out such a huge chunk of their mana base. I mean, nine lands off the off the top, including mm-hmm. Talarian Academy. Um, that's huge. Yeah, and we haven't even you know there aren't many academy quote unquote academy decks these days, but. But boy, this would be a, a problem for that. The <laughs> other thing is, yep. which this is a more nuanced distinction, but the and it doesn't apply to anything that I can think of except Academy. Um, but the idea of turning something that can turn colors of mana into colorless that actually is interesting as well. Um, so it'll turn all you know all the blue mana into a colorless. That could be really painful for a, a an Academy. Oh, sure. A, yeah. There, um, yeah. How many times when you're playing something like DPS have you kept a hand that had a couple of mocks and then an academy because it was going to be so easy to deploy your spells? Yeah, or but even a big blue he, blue deck where you go mocks, mocks, right. academy, Jace. <laughs> yep. And let's not forget too that part of the f- fundamental structure of today's workshop decks is their ability to scale up with large amounts of mana in the late game. You draw that second workshop, and all of a sudden you're playing a, a ballista where X equals four. And this card also eliminates that, and that doesn't eliminate, but dramatically reduces that, such that two workshops and two mocks and only produces a 2-2 ballista instead of a 4-4 ballista. Yeah. And that can have a dramatic impact on the way the flow of a game. I think you're exactly right. Um, the, f- the flow of the game, the sequencing, it, it does, of course, make the huge difference who goes first with this. Um, yes. This, the 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 asymmetry becoming the broken asymmetry of, of sphere effects and how that plays out in a deck that doesn't have one drops is really intriguing. Um, there's a lot to analyze here, but what's intri- most intriguing about it is that although it's easy to articulate um, what it does, it's easy to articulate to see the obvious interactions, and furthermore, it's easy to articulate sequences of plays, what's hard to know is what the patterns will be over time as decks actually play in tournaments. You know, we can, mm-hmm. you know, it, it reminds me a little bit of some of the discussion we had Paradoxical Outcome, where I was really bullish on it, but it's just hard to know. Not because we can't tell that playing this on turn one against workshops is strong, but because we don't know, it's hard to kind of put that in the full picture. That is, the, the steps between having a strong tactic to actually being good in the metagame, meaning winning matches and in tournaments, right? <laughs> yeah, that's the hard thing to kind of fit together. And um, I think uh, the fact that we've dissected this card into a top and a bottom half has also pushed <laughs> us down into at least one incorrect line of thought here, and that is, if you play this on the play against workshops, they only have two cards in their whole deck that allow them to play a creature on the first turn: Mana Crypt and Black Lotus. If they play, that's it. correct. Sometimes they play because, Mana Vault, but yeah, <laughs> uh, that right because the second half of this card, this oh. sphere, prevents them from just going land mox ravager. <laughs> that ravager costs three. <laughs> right. <laughs> so the so Mana Vault. Right. So you, you have to consider Those the two inact- abilities of the in sphere tandem. interacting. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Good point. So if you play this on the turn one versus shops, there is very little chance that they're going to cast a meaningful spell on the first turn. Very little chance. Great point. It because they can't ma- go mox mox land, right? I mean, right. they can go mox mox land, but that's all they're doing, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Um. So yeah, boy, that's interesting. Do 
do you want to I, I, we have two ways we could go from right here i would say one is talking about the second ability now and the other one is talking about what decks and strategies benefit from the first one i'd like to go i'd scenarios. like to go the latter and then we'll go to the second and then we'll tie it together we'll revisit the question okay. but i think i Fair think enough. if we try and go to the second and then ask that question it'll be too confusing um, uh, for yeah, us that's to fair. clearly manage. <laughs> so, that's fair. so I think it's a very important question. And I mean, just the first ability of obviously, there are a lot of things that would love to take away workshops asymmetry. Mm-hmm. The question is, how valuable is that really? So if you're a, let's say, a Comer style Xerox deck and mm-hmm. you go land mocks this, how good is that for you strategically? I think you've made a really good case. It's really good. <laughs> I think it was stronger it, than I believe going into our review that it's even better than I thought. I, I'm i already thinking about how this, this second ability negatively affects the Xerox deck, yes, so it's hard for me to true. tease out. That's true. I mean, that's probably the why play I, that you're yeah. talking about, yeah, the play that you're talking about is very strong at disrupting your workshop playing opponent. They're almost certainly not going to play a creature on one, and they're probably only going to be able to play one creature on two unless something very anomalous happens. So what you're looking at is you're getting to turn three, and they have probably one threat in play, and it's probably not one of their larger right. ones. Right, and you can bolt it or anything like that. It's a little... Right. Like, if you're playing, let's say, a Delver deck, and the Delver mm-hmm. deck with four Wastelands, and you get this down on turn one... Yep. Now, granted, the Delver deck probably only has, like, two Moxen and Lotus, but... <laughs> just bear with me, right? That right. sequence, you're you're winning that game against workshops. I just do not see how a workshop player beats you, honestly. And I and I'd like to clarify exactly why that is. And I think it's not just because they're going to be slow. It's because they can no longer get the tempo benefits of play a bunch of creatures and then wasteland and sphere you. Yes. That's the thing. Yes. Is they can't execute their primary strategy. It's which is I think a more forceful statement than just saying they're going to be slow, yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> it, workshops they is good because of the intersection, and nor yeah, nor overwhelm you with with not being able to play spells. It's just correct. Yeah, in fact, their spheres they just kind of help you actually, <laughs> right? Be- so yeah, so this card really does hamper the explosiveness of workshops. Now, do you think that's still good enough even on the draw? Well, let's. I think there's yeah. a chance that this card will backfire if you try to play it on the draw. Even if you go land mocks this on the draw, you might already be too far behind in certain workshop cases. Yeah. So if you're on a let's say Comer style deck and your opponent goes workshop whatever, um, <laughs> Inspector Ravager, Inspector Mox Ravager. Yeah. And you go this on turn one, you're probably dead because the the combination of the land and play. The workshop plus the inspector, and then another land means that they can play two two mana. No, wait, they can't play two two mana spells because the second part of the card. But they can play a two mana spell immediately and attack you for three. I think so. Let's just be very clear. So if they've got two lands and a mox, they have three mana. Oh, sorry, and the the first creature inspector. Yes, they can. Yeah. Yeah. With the the first creature costs one because of the inspector. The second one is increased by the sphere but decreased by the inspector it still costs two so they can play two yeah they have to have a mox but if they don't have the mox then they can only play one creature on turn two that's fascinating you know i want to pivot away from the comer style decks we get too wrapped up in them let's look at more control style decks and then we'll go to hate bears and fish control decks like land still boy they could just mop up with this because they have wastelands to um 
hit lands that you know take out lands um and uh they can also they aren't punished like comer decks are by trying to play a bunch of spells per turn either so um land still and what about a big blue deck a big blue deck they're not going to be impacted by this as much either um i yet they're really slowing down the workshop deck um so i what i'm hearing from you is that mana drain is kind of any deck that's running Mana Drain is a winner here. Big time. Because they t- they tend to be the, the sort of decks that want to play one counter or removal on your turn and then one impactful spell on their turn yes. on average. And any deck that only wants to play one spell a turn yeah. off of lands that tap for one, <laughs> basically, is almost entirely unaffected by Damping Sphere. Right. It breaks the synergy against other decks that are trying to overload you with tempo. That's right. Much less combo. Yeah, the the flip side, of course, being that land still probably only runs two Moxen and Lotus, so you're not going to be powering this out on turn one very much. And a five Mox land still deck is going to have other problems. But still, that is the kind of strategy that benefits most from this and breaks the symmetry as much as possible. Right. Boy, this is interesting. All right, let's. I mean, obviously, I think the same analysis applies to fish and hate bears. I mean, hate bears, mm-hmm. if they can get this down on turn one. You know, a human's deck, it will be tremendously important against workshops because the workshop deck will be stymied substantially. And both fish and hate bears decks run wastelands and all that kind of stuff as well, right? So And they yeah, and they tend to to play one spell per turn. Right. Right. That's right. So let's go to the second part now. I don't think we can wait any longer. <laughs> so we I mean we've already obviously this affects Storm, but we've already just started to dovetail into other decks that are just tactically and strategically trying to play multiple spells per turn. Workshops is it's clearly on that list. What else is on that list that is trying to hit you with a flurry well, of spells, well, even if it's not Storm? Yeah, the two kind of schools of vintage magic, if you will, that, that try and maximize the number of spells per turn are the restricted list combo decks, meaning the Storm decks, the Bargain decks, the Ad Nauseam decks, the, those kinds of paradoxical decks, and mm-hmm. then the, uh, the, the certainly paradoxical decks are both can also come in that come in big blue form, the paradoxical right. strategies, period, but also the Comer decks, which want to play cantrips and gush and things like that, multiple spells per turn. Those are deeply impacted by this. In fact, as a sphere effect, <laughs> this card is worse. I think it's probably... So So here's the thing, right? If you were to play a preordain, this co- it costs blue, so it's worse mm-hmm. than a sphere. But if you yep. want to play a Gataxian Probe and preordain, then it becomes sphere of resistance. If you want to play, I don't know, let's say mental misstep, <laughs> preordain and force of will, then it's better than sphere of resistance. Right. So um, better for your opponent. For your opponent, <laughs> right? Yeah. So it. Yes, I see where you're going exactly. <laughs> so so keep keep the train moving, Kevin. So I'd like to point out the effect that this I, I, and this might not be where you were going, but well, the effect that this has on Oath of Druids decks. So. Again, let's talk about on the play. Your Oath of Druids playing opponent is trying to do one of two things in most games. They're trying to resolve Oath of Druids as soon as possible, or they're trying to do their best big blue impersonation and play Dak and Jace and draw the game out and control the board. This card really hurts <clears throat> both of those approaches. Because if you go Landmox this, then they can't go Orchard Mox Oath, right? Right. They just can't. In fact... They're they're down to playing Oath of Druids on turn two. At which point, that's a good point. You've given yourself more time and uh, an ability to fight against that oath. And also, I'd like to point out they can't protect their oath. 
So if you play this and they just go land, maybe land Mox, or maybe they play a, a cantrip, your next turn, you just go land go. You've got three mana. They go second land uh, Oath of Druids. Now, if they don't have another mana, if they haven't played a Mox on one, they can't force back their Oath. Right. So if, right. if they tap out for Oath, then you just go Force <laughs> of Will, and your Force is going to resolve because they can't announce another spell. Interesting. So, so does that? So this is a this is deep, Kevin. That is a I know, deep it is. point. So hold on a second. <laughs> Who benefits in that scenario? It's the control player, right? The control yes. player in this scenario, because inherently the reactive player, the defensive player, is the player is who advantaged. is advantaged because in every encounter, they will have been playing fewer spells that turn normally. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a good encapsulation yeah. of how it impacts the strategic positioning. I like it. And if you can entice your opponent to play, <laughs> to have to play or replay things, then you play into this card's benefit. The first thing that I wanted to say back when we were talking now? about shops, <laughs> the, the first card that I thought of that I wanted to play with Damping Sphere was Hercules Recall. Wow. Look at oh the impact of Hercules Recall with Damping Sphere oh in play. Oh my god. <laughs> Now, granted, vintage decks don't play a ton of bounce spells just for the purpose of tempo, but a little bit goes a long right. way. If you if you run Hercules Recall main deck and you just Hercules your oath playing opponent, for example, <laughs> on in the mid game just to pick up those Moxen, that actually materially hurts them right. for the next two or three turns. It, not and not only materially options. hurts them, it, it makes could, it harder to play things like Jace the Mind Sculptor. It could define or determine. Who wins on the stack in the next stack battle? Be- yep. Y- y- boy, repeals looking better and better as, <laughs> also, as an opponent, y- not on your own cards, but on your opponent's permanence. And another card that's a big winner from this, I think, is Null Rod. Yeah. Because then you're talking about playing the fairest magic possible. You're talking about playing your lands out and playing your spells on curve, and that's it, basically. With this card, at which point a deck like Landstill or maybe a more controlling bug deck that has death rights, anything that can interact with your opponent without using spells out of hand goes way up in value. Wow, that's an in- another interesting point. <laughs> yeah, you know, I don't, I did not anticipate that we would be able to go this deep on this fascinating card. The more <laughs> that I think about it, the more fundamentally impactful the potential of this card appears to be. Um, and it amplifies the power of planeswalkers too. Wow, that's true. That's because that, again, if you which bounce also, that creature with Jace the Mind Sculptor, also, they can't just yeah, which also they can't just to the replay benefit it and of control decks, right? Yeah, exactly. So hold on a second. Just hold on. Okay. <laughs> I, all of these points seem to suggest that the reactive decks come out better. Decks that um, have the ability to put your opponent into a position where you can kind of pick a spot and win a counter battle that they can't defend work out better. Um, fairer decks are better, so decks that are less broken, the, mm-hmm. more like Landstill, potentially a Planeswalker Control, certainly the Fish and Hate Bears decks. Those are the big decks that seem to be advantaged with this card. The losers, systematically, are Comer Xerox decks, Storm decks, and Paradoxical decks. And I think what I heard you also saying is that even some strategies that, that may not maybe otherwise control decks, but try and do some quick things, they yeah. they are gonna put be put in some awkward positions. Yeah, well, I think Oath of Druids is the example there. Well, even like key vault type decks, I mean those decks actually seem punished as well. I mean you can't with this in yeah. play, you can't go, for example, you can't go um upkeep vamp, um play a mox, do a thing, 
and protect it with counter magic. You're just not going to yeah. be able to do that. Yep. And how many times have you set up a turn where you bait your opponent with something and then go black lotus tinker? Right? <laughs> exactly. That that plays off off Man, limits I, now too. Well, you know what? Also, this stops Kevin. <laughs> it stops the old infamous land mana crypt tinker play. Yep, it does. <laughs> yeah, this card's really interesting. It also has it. It's going to. The first few people who get captured by this are going to be really upset with themselves, but it makes free counterspells bad in certain situations. I gave you the example of Oath on the second turn, as long as they don't have another mana. But just imagine how much weaker mental misstep becomes when you're trying to use it in the middle of a counter war. You tap, you tap down to, to one or two mana, maybe. Yeah. There's absolutely no reason to restrict mental misstep if this card sees a lot of play. <laughs> because mental misstep wars are no longer... They're no lo- they no longer look like they do now. They just can't. Yeah. <laughs> Mental misstep becomes far more, you have to pick your time to do it, and it might not be at the first opportunity. Right. Like it's, it is in so many cases today. So this is a, a card that tilts the whole format along <laughs> really one axis, and the axis is towards slow, fair, and controlish decks, away from and fast, brutal, and, and, and decks with lots of acceleration. And, you know, we've been saying control, you've been saying control, and I, I don't disagree, but I think that, I think that might not be the most accurate uh, framing, because what this really rewards is playing one spell per turn, but in Vintage, you're rewarded if that one spell is hugely impactful. So it's not like, this card doesn't just favor Mana Drain, for example, this card favors Tinker and Jace the Mind Sculptor. And I was going to say Yawgmoth's Will, that's obviously silly. But oh, this single thing hoses spe- Yawgmoth's Will. I know. Yeah. But single spells that can take over a game. Because look how you can construct Landstill, for example. You've, you've played your Damping Sphere really early. Let's say it was on two, because you're not a Mox deck, really. But you played your Damping Sphere, and now you've gotten into the, the, the mid-game, turn two, three, four, against your opponent. Your opponent recognizes that the damping sphere is going to be impactful so they they keep up a land because they've got force of will plus misstep right because they want to be able to try to play both those on your turn so they keep up one land and say go you as land still player untap and you wasteland them they pool a man in response you move to your combat go to your second main phase and now you just play jace the mind sculptor and now no matter what they had they're down to just force of will is all they can do Wow. And so just the act of having the sphere in play and getting into a point in the mid game where your opponent thought they could play two spells, a simple wasteland cuts them down to one spell. And that's just, that's tactically and strategically enormous. Wow. Because it, because any non spell effect is amplified, especially if it's a mana reduction, you know, so wasteland benefits from this a lot. Any non spell yeah, effect like is just amplified in its efficacy. Yeah. Yeah. Boy, this could be played yeah, in if you, a bug deck really right, If you play Deathrite on turn, yeah, if you turn Deathrite, turn one Deathrite, turn two this, you could find out late in the game that your opponent just never has a good opportunity to address your Deathrite and still further their plans, too. But, it's really interesting. Bug control it strikes me as exactly the kind of deck that benefits from this. It's not a Comer-style deck. It doesn't play a lot of cantrips. It, right. it, it tries to play that kind of effect, you know, a single, a couple spells, um, you know, one or two spells per turn, and mm-hmm. and make them as most as, as impactful as possible. Boy, the- and cards like Dark Confidant and Crucible of Worlds are the sort of cards that really benefit from this effect too. Gradual incremental advantage that's not spell based. Yeah, it's really fascinating. I 
I mean, we've talked about a ton of examples. Obviously, this card's hugely impactful. There are there are going to be plenty of games where you draw this on turn three or four, and it's just the game has already progressed to the point where you can't buy that tempo back. So I don't think this is going to revolutionize the format or anything, but I do think it is hugely impactful on many matchups, and it's beyond the initial impressions of, oh, this hoses shops and storm. It's it's deeper than yeah. that, which I think is is very interesting. Well, um, I have one other thing to mention about this card before we get into uh, our predictions, but or I guess mm-hmm. two points to consider, Kevin. One is if you are a strategy or you're designing a strategy that you want to play, how many of this effect do you have to play in your 75? And the second part of the question is if you decide to include it, um, are you going to put it in your sideboard or main deck? Yeah, excellent, excellent questions. And given the fact that the format is has evolved to be able to address two mana artifacts pretty strongly, then I would say if you want this effect, you probably want to load up on it because there's a very real chance that your first copy gets destroyed. Yeah. Right. Uh, Abrupt Decay, no matter how much it costs, Abrupt Decay is still going to kill this. So I would say that you probably end up playing four, but they might be divided amongst your main deck and sideboard in certain cases. Having four main decks seems probably overzealous. But having three plus one in the sideboard, there's, maybe a little less so. There's nothing that a workshop deck can do about this, though. I mean, this is not going to get abrupt decayed out of Bug. Bug wants this in play. So um, <laughs> I was thinking about Oath, I guess. Oath, Oath, Oath is going to abrupt decay it, this, but, or but Ancient Grudge it, yeah. If you can counter the first Ancient Grudge, they might not be able to flash it back that turn. Yeah, that's true. I mean, that's just what we're dealing with here. It's just, a, yeah. this is an obnoxious card. Um, I, I just, it's hard to know. So obviously, look, here's the thing, right? If you look at the metagame and say, you know, the vintage landscape right now, the three dominant strategies or most prevalent strategies are, in order, workshops, paradoxical decks, and Comer decks, you know, Xerox decks, Mm -hmm. and that's probably true, this card is good against all of them. Does that make it main deckable? Also, also, how effective is this against even something like Dredge? I mean, Dredge can't go, uh, I don't know. Yeah, therapy you, then Dredge Exactly. Yeah, I agree. It is actually pretty effective against Dredge. That is to say, those versions that are not mana-based, plenty of dredge op- opponents will be able to therapy you and then pay the one mana for dread return, so it's not yeah. a deal-breaker. But it can make- there are certain yeah, there are certain dredge draws that will have a real hard time with it this. It'll even make Hollow One harder to cast. <laughs> oh, wow. That's a good point. Yeah, you can't do fun interaction stuff like Hollow One and then sack at the therapy when you really want to sometimes. That's a good point. And the second Hollow One takes takes mana where the first one didn't i gurmag angler costs will cost one more in some cases if you're trying to therapy first to cast it or something i think this card could be main deckable but here's the trick this is not the Mm -hmm. kind of card that you can play like a one of right it's not like you can play it main deck is like a one of this is a a, a, like you you need this when you want it it's important <laughs> right? It's not like the Brian Kelly Sorcerer's Spyglass. <laughs> it's like this is a card you need. And it's and it's also not like the one of Stony Silence that we've seen in Jeskai, for example, where in the matchups where you want it, it's just a hammer when you play it on turn four, for example. This card's not quite like that. You want when you want it, you want it early. And and also, like as I said, you're gonna draw it on turn four sometimes and the game will already be out of control. It won't do what it needs to what you need it to do. That also suggests to me, as you said, that you want more copy. Well, now comes the fun part. <laughs> I don't, I don't know how we can predict this card because every usage we've talked about is kind of 
from the standpoint of upending the format almost <laughs> Re- repositioning certain kinds of control decks to make them better in the metagame but that's always a risky proposition from a prediction standpoint the simple truth is is that you, you can't just put four of these in land still and expect to just dominate shops <laughs> right right it's not going to work that way and bug is at a, at a very low ebb right now and it would take a very reasoned and well-thought-out metagamed version of Bug to really push through at the moment. Bug can beat any two of the top three decks, I think, with some reliability, but it can't beat all three. So, <laughs> who wants to go so, first? <laughs> I'm, I'm feeling like this card will definitely be played. It'll be played by some people just as a sideboard card. We, we need to acknowledge that. Is yes. that this is just a good sideboard hoarder against outcome. It's d- and so some people will only absolutely devastating, <laughs> and some people will only will only treat it as such, and, and that's fine. That'll represent a certain portion of the is play. This, is this a better card against outcome than null rod? No, no, I, I don't okay. think so. Because yeah. because outcome decks can still play cards with with uh, this in play. It just yeah, it's much slower. Against <laughs> okay, with null rod, they just almost can't do anything. Yeah, um, no, I, I do think null rod is worse, but. <laughs> it's, this it's, definitely both changes horrible. things a lot, though. It's like the difference between getting amputated at the knee or the elbow, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, I would say, as pertains to sideboard use, I think I would predict this card in the 5 to 10 yes. range, just on that alone. Yes, I think that's right. It's not an amazing sideboard card, but it's really good at what it does. And then in terms of main deck use, I actually think that's going to be a slow burn. Yeah. I think this is a- it's the sort of thing that we might see in the long run, but people are not going to flock to it because it's, because it's not exciting. It's, uh, it's slowing the game down, and, uh, and not many players are attracted to that. Stacks players are, sure, but... <laughs> <laughs> so, so what do you think? Give us so, a number. So I, I'm thinking that the combination of the two is probably going to be in the 5 to 15 range, so I'm just going to say I'll take 10. So you've got an I'm, easy target I'm to work with. Yeah, I'm going to go north of that. But let me give you the okay. reason first. Okay. So we sometimes look do these set evaluations as if the time of year that we make the prediction doesn't matter. So whether mm. we're talking about February or April or October, we always predict <laughs> in the next three months, right? In the next three to four months. But right. the truth of the matter is that making a prediction in September or October is a big difference from making a prediction in April. And that's because there's a lot of energy and tournaments that happen in the spring and early summer. And there's a lot more effort put into the format. And okay. when we did the predictions of paradoxical outcome, you know, I took I took the upper number and I think I was right on the on the actual facts. But right. what happened was the truth of the matter was that paradoxical was at a very low level until January the following year. Then it yeah. shot up. You know, to huge numbers. Um, really, in February, it took four or five months, not three. Um, I actually think that this is a different time of year. I think this time of year, we're going to see this card applied immediately. And I think the ceiling is enormously high because, like Paradoxical Outcome, or like Snapcaster Mage, or like Graph Digger's Cage, perhaps the best comparison of all, this card is potentially format warping and transformative meaning that it fundamentally reweaves and reconfigures the relationships between strategies in the format and a big, broad axis. It kind of takes the whole format, as if you think of it like a board, and just shakes the whole thing up. And, and it's kind of like <laughs> some of the things fall in one direction and the other things fall in the other direction. 
So I think this card, I'm going to predict 16 or 17. I, I'll go 17. I just think I think it's, number one, it, sh- it hits the top three decks in the strategies in the format. Number two, it's not a card that w- that is potentially playable in just one or two things. It's potentially playable in large swaths of the format. Landstill, blue-black control, right. uh, hate bears, fish, bug control, and potentially other things as well. So I think it has enough potential in enough places and then targets the top of the metagame enough that both as a sideboard tactic and as a mainboard tactic, I think it's just got enough value that it's not only going to be played and impactful, but it's potentially transformative. Well, those are astute points, and I can't argue with any of them except to say we'll see how effective the decks that adopt it truly are at, at performing that upheaval. Yep, agreed. So so what's your number? Was 17. it 16 or 17? 17. 17. All right. That's Damping Sphere. What a start for Dominaria. <laughs> Where do we go next? Let's see how the rest fades out. What's next? Next up, we have Squee, the Immortal. Squee is a legendary creature goblin for 1RR. You may cast Squee, the Immortal, from your graveyard or from exile to 1. Well, we have so many cards to go through. I don't really want to spend a lot of time on this, Kevin. So let's just do a lightning yep. round. Go ahead. <laughs> So this card functions very similarly to there's the Eternal Scourge that you can cast from Exile, I think. That was a few sets back. And I think the primary value here is if you can get a a moderate engine going with something that just lets you want to exile cards, of course. But also with cards like Food Chain that let you make a true mana engine. Food Chain Goblins hasn't been a thing in Vintage for quite a while now. And I don't think that Squee here really pushes it into the forefront yeah it does make for a nice mana engine and it can it does let that deck end a game a little bit faster if if food chain resolves and you have squee and you can cast it and all that stuff resolves you could end a game really quickly but otherwise i think this is um i think this is just a gimmick (laughs) i i agree it's possible there is some other engine that we're missing but you know, it is funny that this card just cannot be gotten rid of. <laughs> the only way I can think of to get it rid of it is to put it in like a um, like a Thanos coffin or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you gain control of it, then your opponent can't cast it again. But yeah, the, you know, the swords to plowshares business is is right out when it comes to Squee. Cute card though. No, nah, yeah, I, I love the flavor and I love the smirk that he's got in the on his face in the art. So zeros on uh, across yes. the board here. Okay, next up is Broken Bond. Now, this is one that our, our good friend and and now Wizards employee Nat Mose requested us to talk about. This is a sorcery for 1G. Destroy target artifact or enchantment. You may put a land card from your hand onto the battlefield. That's an yes, interesting combination. <laughs> we have not seen these things paired before. No. It's kind of explore so, plus uh, naturalize. So Right. So let's talk about the mana cost. Obviously, 1G is an imminently playable vintage mana right. cost. There are many spells ranging from structural broken spells to sideboard cards that at this mana cost have seen play throughout the years. So there's really no debate but there. But would you ever play this over Naturalize or Nature's Claim, more likely? Yeah, so then the benefit there is you're 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 planning to accelerate. Now, so you can take this as a sideboard card for something like Workshops or Oath and look at it in that light. And in that sense... The cast ability almost always trumps the extra exactly. upside in a situation like this. 
So you 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 don't need to be putting a land in play if you're killing a, a critical card, especially something like Oath of Druids or a Time Vault or a Foundry Inspector. So you're not maximizing the land drop there. Even if you do get to do it, I think 99 times out of 100, you'd much rather have had something that just cost one mana. You know, mental misstep notwithstanding, you're going to get better results from a nature's claim and all of its kin like Shattering Spree. Now, there is some benefit in the sphere kind of matchups, you know, shop aggro and stacks in accelerating yourself. So it's not without merit to say destroy whatever they play on the first turn. If they go workshop inspector, you go landmarks, shatter your inspector, put this other land into play. That's a pretty big benefit and specifically against yeah. shops. It is less so against most of the other decks in the format. This is going to sound uh, unintentionally snarky. So, <laughs> okay. But the one of the best uses of this is in the Oath Mirror, <laughs> when you destroy one of their things and play <laughs> an artifact or the Oath and play a second Forbidden Orchard. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty funny. That yeah, that's great. Way to get one over on the Oath Mirror. <laughs> No, I think that the, the long and the short of it is I am never going to be attracted to this for its acceleration purposes, especially because yeah. it's a really lousy draw on the mid game when you don't have another land to play. Then you're just paying too much for this right. effect. And you really you really need efficiency in artifact removal and vintage. There's an incredible premium yeah. on that. And the benefit is just yeah. not enough. It's uh Yeah, I it, agree. There may be some other place you know, maybe like a, a vintage lands deck could use this because that that kind of deck maximizes the advantage of the additional land drops. But if you're playing vintage lands, you probably have additional land drops anyway through exploration type effects. So yeah, mana, mana bond. bond, right? So it's hard to see. Yeah, I think I think that's right. You could make a case that a deck like that would just include these in the main for because they can maximize the ramp more right. reliably, and there's always something to shatter in vintage, but. That's a pretty niche use case and and vintage lands. Aside from my unfortunate experience in the recent TSI, <laughs> vintage lands is not a a consistent performer. <laughs> yet, yet. So yeah, that's right. Yet, keep hope alive. I'm going to go with zero. Mm, me too. All right. Next up, I'm pretty sure this was suggested just for comedic value, but we've got Yargle, Glutton of Urborg, a legendary creature frog spirit for four B. Yargle has no non-flavor text, but it is a 9-3 for 5 mana. So, I mean, that's big game, yes. right? You want to ritual out your frog spirit in, um, I don't know what deck wants to do that. Uh, but still, what, what? <laughs> you, get, you get 9 power for 5 mana. That's pretty potent, right? <laughs> so, um, yeah, so just describe the, just bear, so just go through the sequence in which you would play this. What is it? You would go dark ritual box um, land turn two yargle nine nine power creature that can be lightning bolted. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, the three toughness is really comically bad. I think I think it starts with something like turn one. I thought sees you. There you go to to take your swords to plowshares, yeah. <laughs> and then and then turn two. I, I ritual out this yargle maybe if I'm lucky. <laughs> no, uh, this 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 card is hilarious. The art is and awesome. It, 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 it's evocative. Yeah. I know it's evocative of the early days of magic where you wanted to ritual out the giant fatty <laughs> you, possibly you could. could yeah. <laughs> it's a super <laughs> but, Timmy card. But also this yeah, this card having no combat abilities, it can be blocked by every token generator in the format, and the three toughness gets eaten by lightning bolt. You, you know, your workshop playing opponent is is 
probably going to be able to cast a 3-3 Ballista by the time you can actually resolve this Yargle business. I, I think there's there's just nothing to be said here. Yargle is funny, but not Agreed. applicable. Next up, we have the Weatherlight, a legendary artifact vehicle for mana flying. Whenever Weatherlight deals combat damage to a player, look at the top five cards of your library. You may reveal a historic card from among them and put it into your hand. Put the rest on the bottom of your library in random order. Crew three, and it's a four or five. Reminder that historic means artifact, legendary, or saga. Now, there's only one vehicle that sees consistent play in vintage shops, and that's Fleet Wheel well, Cruiser. Th- that's not. But there's also the skyship. The sky appears in sideboards routinely. Okay, so there are two vehicles, excuse me, then, that see consistent play in vintage. And the Fleet Wheel Cruiser is there because it effectively acts like a (laughs) non-vehicle. It comes in with haste and just gets to attack without crewing. Right. And the Skyship is, um, the the Sky Sovereign, excuse me, is there because it functions as a removal spell, sometimes a repeatable one, and also a fairly large body at Crew 3, and it's a 6-5 flyer, so it also hits very well. This card doesn't have those same qualities. It's not very fast. It's crew three and it's a four or five, which means it's only giving you one extra point of power. So the real benefit here is it acting like an Ophidian in workshops, I think. Yeah, I I want to begin by saying, making a general statement and then trying mm-hmm. to figure out how this card applies to that general statement. I think it's fair to say, I think, so, and this is a truism or an axiom that I think is important in magic in general. One of the most important things in tournament magic is to figure out what are the cards that help you win the mirror match of the best deck. So regardless of the format, mm-hmm. or regardless of the metagame, you know, one of the key skills in any format is winning the mirror match if, of the best deck matchup. And I think it's pretty clear and okay. has been for a while that workshops are the best deck in the format. And therefore, it follows that one of the key things to learn in Vintage is to learn how to win that, the mirror match, the workshop mirror. And there are a number of things mm-hmm. that you can do in the workshop mirror, and we're not going to get into them, but some obvious things are like Hangerback Walker, very good in the workshop mirror. Mm-hmm. One of the w- reasons that Hangerback is good in the workshop mirror is not just the fact that it has insane synergy with Arcbound Ravager, but because the tokens have evasion. And in, in the evasion in the workshop mirror, when the ground is cluttered, actually matters tremendously, right? And, and so I actually right. think the flying is really significant here for the workshop mirror match. Now, I'm not sure that this is better than other cards in the workshop mirror, but I'm willing to grant that this is good in the workshop mirror, and I'm willing to and and if I'm right that the workshop mirror is a hugely important matchup, then that's good reason to think that this is an this is a potentially playable card. Well, that's a good perspective. I think that you can also add to that some of the benefits of flying vis-a-vis planeswalkers. So this this card is pretty good at killing Jace the Mind Sculptor, for example. A little less so at killing Dak, of course, but everything's bad against Dak. Um, and also, there is some inherent value to being a vehicle in Vintage vis-a-vis Jace and vis-a-vis Swords to Plowshares and things like that, because you get to control when this card is a creature, and that can be critical. So I think it's incorrect to, to dismiss a fairly efficient vehicle like this out of hand, especially when it has those various features like flying and also, it's a 4-5, which is a pretty sizable body. It's not going to get bolted by itself. It's not going to die in combat to most right. things that aren't being oathed into play. So I think you've made some good points. On the flip side, 
this vehicle is it would be the most inefficient right. vehicle crewing in terms it. of translating resources yeah. and crewing it but what you're buying back obviously is card advantage the kind of raw card advantage that that fleet wheel cruiser and sky sovereign can't even produce so there's something to be said there obviously in a workshop deck looking at five cards is going to yield you a quality artifact in the high 90 percent of the time yep. right so this is it's, this is even better than just a Jame Day tome, right? <laughs> this is an even better card advantage engine than, say, Staff of Way Man. better. Because you get the card quality yeah. is just far past. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's it's tempting to just point to something that just draws you an extra card every turn and say, well, you need to have thing. this effect. Yeah. It's yeah. The difference be- this is considerably yeah, that's, better. That's the difference between... I don't know. Uh, what's a what's a really weak artifact in the workshop deck? <laughs> a mox. It's the difference between a mox yeah. and a steel overseer, right? <laughs> yeah, or, that's a that, that's a or perfect even point. better, a restricted card. You know, like a lodestone golem yeah. or something in a mox. It's a huge difference. Yeah, uh, yeah. huge difference. And post sideboard, that difference becomes even bigger. Right? Yes. Post sideboard, you're drawing into sideboard cards, which obviously you're going to prize over most other main deck. The sky, the sky sovereign does have a crew three, and it also flies. So that's that's obviously an important reason why it continues to see play in the sideboards. Um, But how would you compare this to that? I mean, is the value of doing three damage that's such that's such a tremendous amount of value that you get right off the bat? (laughs) As opposed to like yeah. really having to invest two cards to crew this, and then you get a card later. I, I'm not. My my size <laughs> indicate my skepticism that this is better than Sky Sovereign. Although it's could well, obviously situationally better, but yes. I I I don't think in general it is. It's probably close. I think part. I think part of the linchpin there is how significant three damage is in the workshop mirror because three damage kills a Almost lot of everything. things almost everything that isn't already been that isn't hasn't already been buffed by a ravager <laughs> yes <laughs> but and so it's hard it, so the weatherlight gets you good card selection it will draw you powerful cards but you still have to cast yes them. the sky sovereign has the benefit of being a removal spell in that your opponent has already played the card and spent the mana and you're getting the effect of removing it ostensibly for no mana thanks to the the crewing and tapping of creatures so there's a lot of inherent benefits to being a removal versus being a card selection card. And the card. Sky Sovereign is at least one to two turns faster. Oh, yeah. I mean, the Sky Sovereign is huge. It has two more power, and it, and it can end the game a lot faster if it's going unchecked, as you just said. Also, the Weatherlight gets chumped by Thopters from Hangerback Walker in a way that Sky Sovereign rarely does. Because... It's not impossible or anything, because you can uh, your opponent could generate Thopters... Mid combat against the Sky the, Sovereign. Yeah, no, <laughs> yeah. that's a great point. But, I completely forgot about the. I completely forgot about the clause that it, you also it. The Sky Sovereign does three damage when it attacks as well, whereas this thing yes. can be chumped. So yeah, I, I, I that clause is the tiebreaker for me. The Sky Sovereign is just clearly better. <laughs> and the Sky Sovereign does cost one more mana. But oh yeah, that's I also true. <laughs> overall, I think overall it's still uh, the winner. That's. That makes it closer. I think it's overall the winner. But let's say, I don't know if you have the stats in front of you, but let's say Sky Sovereign appears in, I don't know, 20 decks in the next quarter. If this yep. even appears in a quarter of that, that's still a vintage playable that's appearing in top eights. <sighs> yes, I think, as we've said for many, many cards in the past, I would describe this card as vintage playable. How much it does is up to people's preferences. It, but it's also, it's also our s- job to predict yeah, it. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, and so, as I've said a number of times before, I won't be surprised if a handful of people play this. I think your conclusion is correct that Sky Sovereign is the superior card. And it's only played traditionally as a one of Sky Sovereign is. So it won't be a, a giant leap for some people to replace their one of Sky Sovereign with a one of Weatherlight and give it a try. And in a moderately sized tournament, they might even encounter the scenario where Weatherlight is superior. Because I do think Weatherlight is superior on a on a, a quasi-empty board against uh, right. uh, a, a Force of Will deck. Most Force of yeah. Will decks would rather... Great are more point. susceptible to you drawing a card than doing Boy, three damage to something. Boy, that's a great point. Uh, heck, you'd want it against Dredgemore, too. Find that next Tormod script yeah. of the Grafdigger's Cage. Yeah, no, that's yeah. a really good point. So here's another way of thinking about it, Kevin. The way that mm-hmm. you just framed the question is, will some workshop players replace their sideboard singleton Sky, Ro- Sky Sovereign Council flagship? But what mm-hmm. if the question isn't will they replace it, but will they supplement it? So the marginal ah. utility, it's, it is possible to hold the position that the Weatherlight is better than the second Sky Sovereign. So you could have both in the sideboard and bring them both in. And they, I mean, they're both, le- I mean, they're legendary. So obviously you, you've drawn them together. It's okay. As opposed to drawing the second Sky Sovereign. It's a fantastic point, And I think you're right. I think this is better than a second Sky Sovereign. And it gives you flexibility for in the matchups where one is slightly better than the other. And in the case of, say, a workshop mirror, you're not going to be overly, you're not going to be powerfully punished by drawing one versus the other. You give up a little bit of value, but you also gain some value in the situation where you draw them both. So I think that, that's a very reasonable point. And what that does is it suggests, as you positioned it a few minutes ago, some portion of Sky Sovereign play would likely translate into weatherlight play and to your implied question a few minutes ago also it looks like in the last three months so going back to january of this year sky sovereign made three top eight appearances in main decks no scratch that five top eight appearances in main decks of tournaments that are 16 players or more that's that's more than i would have expected honestly and but then when you go to the sideboard and going back to January, it looks like one, two, three, four, another five appearances as well. Now, I haven't vetted that fully to see if any of those are the same deck. If somebody had one main, one side that would add to that. But looks like this quarter was about 10 Sky Sovereign top eights. And so to use the metric you used, it could be that we're looking at a, a two to five for Weatherlight, depending on people's excitement. I think it's, I think it's imminently reasonable. I'm definitely going to go non-zero. I think I'm just going to go one. <laughs> I'll take because I don't think this card is that no, great, but I, but uh, it's it's playable. So I don't want to you know use our podcast to come up with a list of cards that are good in the in the workshop a comprehensive list of cards that are great in the <laughs> workshop mirror. But the obvious <laughs> obvious cards are Hanger Backwalker, Steel Overseer, Precursor Golem is really good in the workshop mirror. Um, mm-hmm. And I think Sky Sovereign is good as well. And I think this card is also good. And I think cards that are good in the workshop mirror matter. So. Definitely. So I, I'm going to go. Uh, I'll just go two. I think it'll be more than that. You know, I'll, okay. I'll take. I'll take. Uh, how many? How many sky sovereigns did we have been played in the last? I said it. It looks like it was ten. 10. I'll take three yeah. then. Three of this. All right. Fun conversation. I was initially pretty down on the weather light, <laughs> but 
but your contextualization there i think has turned me around a little bit i think well, it's it's probably going to see a little more action can i than make I a restatement because i i, I think sure. i did a little bit of an awkward job but one of the most important skills in magic is identifying the best deck and then figuring out how to beat the mirror and if that's true then cards that do that actually matter a lot and i think this card is is decent along that scale so <laughs> gotcha no i think that's a that's a good point good observation all right, this next one is bound to be fun to discuss. We're talking about Karn Scion of Urza, a legendary planeswalker Karn, four mana, that is four colorless or generic mana, plus one, reveal the top two cards of your library. An opponent chooses one of them. Put that card into your hand and exile the other with a silver counter mm-hmm. on it. Minus one, put a card you own with a silver counter on it from exile into your hand. Minus two, create a zero zero colorless construct artifact creature token with this creature gets plus one plus one for each artifact you control. And Karn starts with five loyalty. I love this design. This design is so this cool. Is, <laughs> this is a really this great card. Really it slices and dices. Yeah. He, he, so first of all, Four mana is a really good sweet spot for uh, a um, a planeswalker, and one of the things that we've always held out as being kind of crucial for the planeswalking is the ability mm-hmm. to um, generate card advantage. And what this does so well is it generates card advantage in such an intriguing pattern, right? Because you, mm-hmm. it's kind of got this mini factor fiction at the top, which is kind of just an ex- exciting, fun thing just to see happen, right? <laughs> but yep. then, good point. But then that the, once you use it a couple of times, then the other ability, the second ability, really kicks in a powerful way because you get to choose. So let's say you've used the top ability twice and you've drawn two cards, and they're obviously not the best cards. And then you use the down ability, the minus one loyalty ability that allows mm-hmm. you to pick one of the cards with a silver counter on it. You get to pick the best one. Yeah. So yeah, Definitely. so there's this really cool. I mean, you're getting you're getting cards, and then you're getting good cards on the you know, and you can get you know. Now the the one drawback is you've got to use the top one first before you can. It's not like um, you know, it's not like some of the other planeswalkers when you do the. You do the you know the the minus immediately. You don't really get to do that, right. but it's still you're still getting a lot of card advantage out of this card and and card selection as well later on. True, very true. So I I like it all all over. I also think you know in terms of the four colorless mana, it it means that this thing can see play in a lot of places. Uh, it can be played in kind of blue moon decks that have ancient tombs quickly. It can be played in in land still mana drain decks. It can be played in uh, workshop decks which have the mana to cast it. It can be played in a lot of places. It's really versatile. Well, I mean, it seems like a tautology to say, but because it's colorless, it can be played in any place effectively, <laughs> any place that produces mana. Right? Dredge isn't about to yeah. isn't about to to launch this out, but. And also, it has the inherent synergy with artifacts, which obviously are omnipresent in Vintage, and nearly every deck that would play this card is probably planning to tap a mox to play it at some point along the way. So the creation of these mini artifact lords, so to speak, is inherently boosted by the fact that you're... You're oh, almost geez. certainly going to have an artifact or three in play yeah, already. Oh, geez, I didn't even get to that. Yeah, that, ult- that, that quote-unquote that, ultimate can be used immediately. So, and can be used twice before yeah. Karn. You can be used twice, and Karn's still in play with a uh, with a loyalty. So it's it's 
tempting to position this Karn as a juggernaut of sorts. If you have two Moxen in play, you just play this Karn and minus it, and you made a 3-3. And that's just with two Moxen and nothing else of of material difference, right? As soon as you (laughs) factor in uh, a Damping Sphere or a Voltaic Key or a Sensei's Divining Top, then you're making a 4-4 right there. It doesn't take much to produce a vintage deck that can reliably make 4-4s with this minus ability at the bottom. Let's go over. And that adds yeah, up let's fast. go over that for a minute. So let's just play that mm-hmm. out a little bit. So if you're playing a Grixis control deck and you play this like you would a Jace, right? Yep. Um, but you can get this out immediately. Like you can go, for example, like Mox Mana Vault Land Karn, right? Then yep. you activate it, you get a colorless. It's a, it, the, immediately it would be a 3 3 in that scenario. The next turn you use the plus one. You're going to be flipping restricted cards pretty soon, Kevin, and then you're going to be drawing them with the minus one. <laughs> That's a good point. Now, I would point out that a high percentage of the time, you're going to get a mana source with yes, the plus I one. Yes, I agree. An exceedingly yes, high but percentage in paradoxical of the decks, time. That's fine. Yes, and also in decks that can set the top of their library, this plus one gets a lot Holy better. hell. Top. Yeah. So, uh, this Karn loves oh Sensei's Divining God, Top every yes, direction. It does. Because <laughs> if you fl- look at that top and you see a land and two business spells, you just put the combination of them there and get whichever those business spells is worse, but you avoided that land. And never mind that your top is contributing to the size of your constructs all, all along. It's Yeah, top and this Karn are very, very good yeah, friends. This works with top like Bob works with Jace. <laughs> yep, I mean, it's the, the super synergistic. And, and this Karn is good with Jace, too. But yeah, of still. course. <laughs> what isn't? <laughs> <laughs> what isn't good with Jace, right? So I think this Karn is eminently playable, and it's just a matter of... what. So which of these abilities to do decks in the format really want and need? For example, Oath. If you're searching for the card Oath of Druids, you're almost certainly going to have to use the plus and then the minus to get it. Because no one in their right mind is going to give you that oath unless the other card is, I don't know, Ancestral Recall or Time Walk or Yawgmoth's Will or something foolish. But but a vast majority of the time, you're not going to find the card you're looking for if you're trying to use this plus ability to find it. Granted, you get access to it next turn, but that's frequently not going to be good enough. So this card is not great at at burst card advantage or burst tutoring, so to speak. It really wants to be in a deck that is planning to activate Sensei's Divining Top and get incremental value and put your opponent in a position where both the cards you reveal are bad for them, that kind of thing. The minus ability is entirely contingent on the top ability, and the minus ability, the sorry, the first minus ability, minus one, can also be stymied for prolonged periods by bad results from the top ability. If you, for example, plus one and reveal a land and a preordain, you're probably going to get that land, unless some strange scenario is about. And you're also putting a silver counter on a preordain. Unless you're pretty hard up for cards, you're, it's a very weak use of that minus one ability to just go get that preordain next turn. Not to say that it's incorrect, it's just very comparatively weak to other planeswalkers, compared to the fact that you could have brainstormed twice with Jace mm-hmm. at this point. So I really think that any deck that wants this Karn really has to be able to tactically make use of the first and the last <laughs> ability. I agree. I think that that essentially puts you into a paradoxical or a workshop deck. I, okay, I disagree on both fronts. First, paradoxical... Well, the boy, reason the paradoxical is... The, be- the plus ability is, 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 is good in paradoxical because you've got the tops, yes. probably. 
And the exactly. minus ability is good because and you've you're going to be making enormous constructs. Both, there's a third reason, and the third reason is because in the paradoxical decks, the getting a, a mox is actually has more value than it would in another deck. Oh, okay. Yep, I agree with that. So the flip side being that this becomes part of the slower game for those paradox decks, but it might not be that slow. No, the construct is <laughs> huge. The constructs could be seven sevens pretty That's what reliably, I'm actually. Yeah. <laughs> That's the Oh, don't forget too that the second activation of the minus two ability buffs the of first course. construct you made. <laughs> I'm not. Yeah, it so, turns a seven sevens so until you, you get another yeah, eight. Yeah, you eight. play this card and make a five yeah. five, yeah. Then next turn you do it again and it buffs the first one and you swing in. Yeah, it's pretty synergistic in that respect. So I think you're onto something there. I think this is pretty synergistic in outcome. But it you would describe it as a B plan, right? It is it is orthogonal to the normal plan of the deck. Yes, I would totally, of course, agree with that. I don't even like Jace the Mind Sculptor in Paradox decks, but I think I would like this. Because this is... Yeah, I think I would. Um, but I, I, This will certainly end the game faster than why. Jace. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I get you. So then the other example you gave is Workshops. Now, that's challenging, of course, because Wishers Workshop can't cast this card. But the deck is also it's, filled with ancient tombs and, and extra mana, so it's completely reasonable to play and this. And I think like the Paradox decks, this card gives you a imminent role question, a role assignment question. You yeah, know, and, and I, I like that. <laughs> and like the Paradox decks, the, constru- the constructs you create with this are going to be huge right. on average. And they could be just in- they could be impressively and immediately lethal. Let's let's make a note of the fact that the construct has a a static ability that is always checking. It says this creature gets plus plus one for each artifact you control. That means that you pump this Karn out on turn two after you just played a I don't know. Let's say you played a Ravager on one, then you play an Ancient Term on two and play this Karn. You make a construct. That's great. That construct is probably about a four four. Let's say you've got Ravager Mox. No, it's maybe only a 3-3. You might only have Ravager and Mox as other as other artifacts. Next turn, though, you play a Workshop and a Hangerback Walker right. on 3. And then you sack that Hangerback Walker to make 3 Thopters. God. And then you minus 2 of this <laughs> Karn again to make another Construct. That 3-3 three, three Construct now, you made on turn 2 is now 8-8, eight, yeah, eight, yeah. I think. Maybe, maybe only 7-7. Seven, steal seven. Overseer, pump, and your opponent's dead. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So... Even in a relatively tepid workshop draw, these constructs can get out of control fast. Agreed. And it's also very synergistic with, as we've discussed before, the basic things that workshops are trying to doing, trying to do vis-a-vis inspector and flooding the board. And this Karn also gives you, oh wow. So <laughs> you mentioned cards that are good in the workshop mirror. How does this feel to you? <laughs> because this way, it's a non-mana effect every turn. So you yes. can be alternating minus twos and plus ones to get constructs, get cards, and in the in the situation of the workshop mirror, there are many situations where any two cards in your deck are just going to be yeah. good. If they right? give you a land, it's good. If you know whatever, yeah, I think exactly. There's, yeah. there's a lot of situations where there's no bad cards. I guess a mox would be possibly the worst card, but still, there's a lot of no bad give card me a scenarios mox if I have a in the workshop I don't mirror. Care. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, I, so this card seems really powerful. That's a, um, let me yeah. let me ask you from a different perspective. So according to Gatherer, there are 107 planeswalkers in Magic. Now I don't mean planeswalkers <laughs> like Jace. I mean individual planeswalker cards, and probably a few yeah. of those are 
un, un what was it unhinged type cards, so you can ignore yeah like Urza yeah. There's a, there's at the least Academy one. Headmaster. Yeah. So maybe 106. My guess is that this <laughs> is it. I would say this is at least in the top 20, probably the top 15, possibly the top 10. Do you want? Uh, and are you talking about sorry, just vintage sp- specifically? Specifically talking for vintage. So let's. Yeah. Do you want to just play? Th- I think this is. I think this is immediately in the top so ten for vintage, and possibly immediately yeah, in the top uh, five. So let's <laughs> let's list them. What are our top ten planeswalkers in vintage? Jace the we don't have to do it in order. Jace the Mind Sculptor, Jace Friend's Prodigy, Tezzeret the Seeker, Tezzeret Agent of Bolas. What's the um, Backfaden is top one or two. <laughs> yep, what about yep. the uh, the one? There's a really good. Um, the one that Rich Shea played in the v- last season, the VSL against me in his Planeswalker deck, is like a red one that. Um, oh, you're talking about Chandra yeah, Torch of the really Fire. annoying. What does it do again? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> lots of stuff. There's Chandra Torch of the Fiance, and then there's also Arlen Cord, and then there's a personal favorite of mine, which is probably maybe fringe nine or ten, but that's Timio Field, where it's a researcher. Yeah, and then there's a. Um, I think Duretti is is still underplayed to this day. Um, I think Duretti scores higher than Tezzeret Agent of Bolas, but that's that's debatable. fair. And I feel like there's another obviously blue they're one in, that, they're in the second or third. Isn't there tier. another blue one that was pretty good that was um, sometimes played in these Planeswalker decks that I'm forgetting about? Uh, possibly, but I'm sorry I can't remember okay. at the moment. But the po- the point is there's about ten playable Planeswalkers. I, I think you have a blue red one, by the way. Ralzer, yes, that one, that one saw has seen play for sure. Yeah. Yeah, that was that was fringe play, but yeah, that's where Alzeric is is probably number eleven and then or twelve. The, there's of course list. our infamous uh, um, Kiora, and then Shahili Ray saw play for in, in some fringe decks as well. But yeah, those are I yeah, think all exactly. those latter ones are all clearly below this Karn card. Um, yes. So yeah, I, I think this is in the top ten and arguably in the top I five. Think, I think that Chandra is probably a good comparison point for this in that. It's it doesn't obviously go in every deck that can <laughs> right. cast it, but when you can when you can build around the functions of each of the abilities well enough, then it, it rockets up into being very powerful. And so I think Chandra is a pretty good reference point, although not for the same. What reasons. was the Chandra one that was so annoying I, that we Torch of Defiance? Oh yes, of course, <laughs> of course, <laughs> yeah, because it 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 deals a kind of unstoppable damage, and then the emblem is just lethal right yeah the emblem is just yeah. game over yep. so do you want it just for fun do you want to try and rank the top five planeswalkers i think we've brainstormed well them. i i think it's i actually think that dak fade is number one i think dak fade is yeah. number one i think jace the yep. mind sculptor jace the mind sculptor is the only one that has the competition there simply be, it's hard to weigh in terms of criteria historical value yeah. versus contemporary value historical value tezzeret the, the seeker is like blows most of these away <laughs> but contemporarily yeah. sees almost no play um i think it's a logarithmic scale at this point <laughs> honestly i think i think that after deck and jace it drops precipitously and well, in terms of third place it's probably either tezzeret or jvp i think probably JVP, jvp is right now. probably right behind yeah. that i don't think it's as, i think jvp is sometimes better than jace the mind sculptor actually but well the situationally yeah. i agree Overall. And then who's who's number four right now though? Do you think it's Tezzer at the Seeker still? That's a good question. That boy, that's tough. There's no yeah, there's no clear spot. I mean the the candidates are yeah, the candidates are I guess Tezzer at the Seeker, Chandra, um boy, I wish I'd play with more of these planeswalkers so I'd have a sense of them. <laughs> Nahiri maybe is up maybe doesn't isn't that Oh uh, yeah. We didn't mention Nahiri, you're right. She sees she's fringe playable. When she's good, she's very good yeah. though. Um 
Also, I guess I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Gideon of the Trials, which is a has a soft spot for me and and some of my friends because that that produces some very interesting game states. Uh, I can't say I'm particularly familiar with that one. I guess <laughs> he's he's the one that you can ultimate right away, and you get an emblem that says you can't oh. lose as long as you control <laughs> oh. a Gideon. <laughs> I guess. Yeah, we reviewed him. He's an I guess I would say Tezzeret the Seeker is probably next. Although maybe these days yeah. Tezzeret Agent of Bola sees more play than that. I don't know. But Tezzeret the Seeker is still quite lethal in the format. It's it's yeah. Tezzeret the Seeker is is probably more played than Agent of Bolas. Thanks. Yeah. To so I guess I would put that, and yeah. then maybe R- Ralzeric or something like that. The, no, Chandra's I'm way sorry, better than yeah. Ralzeric. Right yeah, that's now. true. Chandra. I guess. I guess. Yeah. I think Karn is like up there with Chandra. That's pretty powerful. Yeah, I think. I think he's pretty close to fifth place. Wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that's that says something, but but you have to keep in mind that Chandra, even though she might be the fifth best planeswalker in vintage, is actually pretty fringe. She is right. not not frequently played. In fact, the third best one, if our list is correct, Tezzeret no, is also no, the third not is J- heavily Jason played. The Prodigy. Oh, sorry, yeah. the fourth. So fourth, four and five. That's why I say I think it's a logarithmic scale because the first three are played a lot and it drops quickly in terms of amount of play. But that's just my the personal scale in my head. So to say that Karin might be fifth on this list is sounds like a bold statement, but really it just means vintage playable, basically. Now, I'm, I'm not trying to cast dispersions. I think that Karin is vintage playable, and I think that there's a chance he will be more often played than Chandra. So maybe he jumps to fifth on the list right away. All right. I think he's a little less... He's, he's obviously less flexible than Chandra, though, right? He, he does not function as removal. And if your opponent has any kind of, like, if your opponent has another Planeswalker, then this Karn is actually pretty weak by comparison. You're not going to want to make constructs in the face of Dak or Jace, the Mind Sculptor. And if you just play him and plus him and flip over two cards and they give you a land, you're going to feel pretty far behind against an opponent that has any of the other top three or four Planeswalkers. Now, granted, that might be a situation that you can still win from because Karn's not a dead card by any stretch and you can manipulate the situation. But I just think in a, in a, from a heads up comparison, there's a reason he's only fifth on the list is because he, he's not very impactful unless you're in a position where a, a large artifact creature was already going to be pretty good. Cool. So what does that mean then? So let's dial this back to Chandra as a starting point, just, just to, to establish some reference. So in terms of vintage top eight appearances for Chandra Torch, main deck appearances in this quarter, top eights for 16 or more players looks like one, two, three, four, five, six, six for Chandra. Wow. I, I think that's probably spot on. I think, you're, I think your comparison is right. I'll say five on this. And there's also, there was also some sideboard play, say, but not this I'll year. I'll say four back or five December. on this. That's my prediction. Okay. I think I do think that this is the kind of card that people will be attracted to. I think there might be some people who just Oh, I was just about to say they might throw this in their deck the way they would Narset. We forgot Narset. Yes. Um and I think I think this card is is actually fairly analogous to Narset now now that I mention it. And how many Narsets are there? Just some some straight up card advantage that's just incremental and and not not brainstorm level like with Jace. So main deck appearances for Narset, top eights, Q1 this year, one, back in January, in the challenge. Okay, so I think this is a non-zero. Narset's not not nearly as popular as Chandra has been lately. No sideboard appearances for Narset. So 
I think that's a pretty reasonable estimate then between one and one and five. I do think people will be pretty ex- energized by this Karn. And if anyone was going to play Tezzeret Agent of Bolas, I think there's a, a fair fair chance that they would play this Karn instead. <laughs> or in addition. So I'm I'm feeling like a I'm feeling like three. I think that's right. I was gonna say five, but I'm gonna pull it back a little bit to four. I'm gonna say four. Okay. Reasonable. Well, Steve, I think we're contractually obligated to review Mox Amber, right? <laughs> I mean, it's vintage. You got to review every Mox that comes along. So Mox Amber is a Mox, legendary artifact, legendary artifact for zero. Tap, add one mana of any color among legendary creatures and planeswalkers you control. Yes. And by the way, the art on this is beautiful as well. Oh, yeah. It's uh, fantastic. <laughs> I'm going to want to own some of these regardless if it sees play. Yeah, it's a beautiful card. But, you know, one of my one of my favorite exercises when the last Mox was printed, Mox Opal, um, I was writing my Mirrodin Besiege set review and it was fun to think about Metalcraft and do a complete analysis of that. But one of the things I said about Mox Opal is I said, this is the best Mox ever printed since Alpha. <laughs> so one of the things I like to do is I like to compare all the kind of rank all the moxes just kind of how we did with Planeswalkers. Nice. Um, and, you know, we don't need to rank the Alpha Moxen because they're obviously the best. And then behind that is Mox Opal and then Chrome Mox and then Mox Diamond is clearly the worst. <laughs> For vintage. <laughs> For vintage. Yeah. But Mox Diamond is actually not terrible in that it's pretty good in like a, a land deck, like Life of the Loam type deck. Yep. You can play, uh, you know, it, get, it allows you to get rid of one of your lands and then you can recur, recur it back. Um, and it, it has a place, a very, very, very marginal place. Um, I wonder if this is better than Mox Diamond because I don't think it's better than any others. But let's go ahead and go, you know, let's go ahead and begin analyzing it a little bit more detail. The conditions that require require this to work are pretty stringent. Right. You know, obviously, the problem with Chromox and Mox Diamond is that they both um, are card disadvantageous off the bat. And the sp- ditching a spell is easier than losing a land, simply because the ratio of spells to lands in most decks. Um, this this is not going to accelerate you very quickly. Um, and it doesn't really help if you have a colorless legendary permanent. You need a colored permanent in play, like, for example, a Jace Friends Prodigy or a um, Leovald, right? Mm-hmm. So what are the kinds of legendary permanents that you would need? What are, the, what are some legendary permanents that we could use to try and actually get this card working, Kev? To make this not a... Uh, what's that card from Ice Age that was the the bad mocks that you have to, like, fill up to use? <laughs> That's it. Oh, geez. You're talking about the amulet. What was it called? Yeah, yeah. It's it's like zero mana, but you have to tap to add mana to it, and then you can use it again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The amulet is yeah. not a good not a good mox. But <laughs> yeah. I, I think you've already answered. Um, I think you've already answered one of the best possible use cases already, and that is Jace Verin's Prodigy, because clearly, if you're going to turn on Mox Amber, then you're going to wish you had played a the most efficient legend or planeswalker that you can and the absolute cheapest legend that sees vintage play on any regular basis is jvp there isn't a two mana planeswalker that sees play in vintage at all unless you're counting jvp but there are a couple of other legends that see occasional play that are cheap enough like for example kataki kataki is a legend that you could play and thalia is a legend that obviously sees play 
Now, both of them have a bit of dissynergy with Mox Amber. Okay, you can play the Mox before you play your Thalia, but Kataki plus Mox Amber is not a very good combo. Yes, right, um, right. <laughs> Nor is Thalia Mox Amber, but yeah. I mean, Thalia Mox Amber is fine if you play the Mox first, yeah, right? first, but, right. But the Amber does not contribute to you casting turn one Thalia, which is obviously nope. the whole point of, of Thalia. Uh, it's worth right. noting, however, that Kataki and Thalia frequently go in the same decks so <laughs> yeah. there's something to be said for that awkward <laughs> well because one of the things that mox amber requires is a certain density not just of legendary not just quality yeah. but density of these legends or planeswalkers so it makes sense that say the just guy model with multiple jvps and dax and jaces is a possible home but that's not a very compelling or or impressive use of a mox right if it, if it becomes active on turn three because you finally played a Jace the Mind Sculptor, well, that was just not a very good magic card, was it? You know, there is that's true. There is another option with this card, and that is in, in an Oath deck as a one-of. You could, you know, get your Oath creature into play, and then, like, for example, with Gristlebrand, and then draw into this. But, it, again, it's not going to help you accelerate. That might even be the most compelling use case, honestly. That you mentioned Leovold, so you could yeah. we could position a Leovold deck to have Jace Vrin's Prodigy as well as another cheap Planeswalker. The four color Leovold decks frequently had Dax, so such a deck could be upwards of a, of ten maybe creatures and, and Planeswalkers that would satisfy this. Baral is another legendary permanent that could help fuel this. Yep, and we talked about Baral in a very complimentary fashion, but he has not really. Made no. a splash in vintage. So at the two mana spot for legends, we're really talking about we're talking about Jace Fringe Prodigy, Baral, or Thalia. That's pretty much it. Or oathing into a creature. Yep. <laughs> a legendary yep. creature. Now this could increase the utility of Baral a little bit, but I don't think that I don't think that the thing keeping Baral from vintage play is having enough accelerance to go with him. <laughs> the other thing is the planeswalkers do amp this up. So it doesn't have to be just legendary creatures. Yeah, I think given the short list that we that you just rattled off there, there's pretty much no way this won't actually be played with Dak Faden as well. Right. And uh, the Thalia path is not there's not enough legends to make like White Eldrazi be able to play Mox Amber, unfortunately. Agreed. So I don't think the Thalia path is truly a a, a successful one. Jeez, I don't think this card's going to see any play in Vintage. <laughs> so, I mean just face value how many enablers does your deck need to make this card even playable let's say your deck you could just put as many zero mana legends in your deck as you wanted okay ignoring the fact for the moment that and they planeswalker yeah, yep ignoring for the moment that they wouldn't actually activate this card which is not my point my right. point is how many just free rolls would you need to have in your deck to make this even a playable mox i mean the answer has to be uh, upwards of 10, 10 to right? 15 yeah yeah I was just say ten to fifteen. <laughs> now you can get there with with four JVPs and and three Dak Fadens and two J- uh, Jaces. Uh, that's nine. <laughs> Throw in one more Planeswalker, a Chandra, maybe. That's ten, but that's not exciting. No, I think this card would only really see potentially have enough if it was in a dedicated Planeswalker control deck. And that even then, it's not going to be doing what you need because you you're going to only be able to use it once you've established your board control. Yeah, what's the or at least partly? Yeah, what, so what's just for the sake of thoroughness? What's the absolute best case scenario here? You go landmox Jace, play your Amber, and now you can cast Preordained Swords. 
whatever extra right. one drop. And now you've got four mana on turn two more reliably. So you're more reliably at Chase the Mind Sculptor or Nahiri or something on turn two. Rolzeric, anything, yeah. yeah. That's the absolute best case scenario, I would say. Uh, let's not forget certain niche legends like um, Vendillion Click and Leovold, as you said earlier. So could you put together a bug control list that was heavier on Planeswalkers and Legends than average? Four JVPs, two or three Leovolds, a Click, three Dax and a Jace. Three Dax and two Jace. That's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. That's a, that. I mean, that's upwards of fourteen. But only, but there's only JVP at the two mana slot, so it's almost certainly a Deathrite Shaman deck. So then you're Deathrite on one, and then Leo deck click on two, facilitating your Amber to cast uh, a, again a Cantrip or something on two, and having slightly more reliable four drops. What does what does that say to you? Saying so you put together a four color Leo deck that has upwards of fourteen enablers. It's a Rube. It's a Rube Goldberg contraption. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I've, I've played that deck, and it it didn't really need Mox Amber. Is, is the thing exactly? Death, or, yeah, Deathrite Shaman was far and away the better card in that deck. In fact, yeah, that deck only had on, <laughs> the only that deck only had on color Moxen in it. The only function of Mox Amber I've concluded is that it'll be in a uh, from the vault set someday. <laughs> <laughs> well it's a pretty good edh card that's that's the other okay, use case okay. for it <laughs> that's outside my use value so yeah i completely I understand and my worldview yeah <laughs> so i think uh, you know what's it's all the ultimate sadness here steve is that you can't enable this with hope of Girapur. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. <laughs> uh, poor hope of gear ah, it will have its day yeah someday yeah you know i think you you might have hit on one of the corner use cases and that is gristle branding into this because it's you know it's it's a better lotus petal once you've oathed up your gristle brand if only this could tap for colorless right that would that, i think that's actually unprintably good <laughs> because you'd have a yeah a legendary well why i mean a legendary creature Oh no! I'm sorry. You meant as if it could, if you could play Hope of Giraper and then tap this for colorless. Exactly. Oh, okay. Exactly. No, I thought you meant yeah, if yeah. it tapped for colorless also and then had this. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> okay. Yeah. No, I get you yeah. now, and that yeah, that would have been a nice uptick because then Hope of Giraper might have had its day. But no, I'm going to go with zero for Amber. Me too. All right. Next, let's talk about Joyra's Familiar, an artifact creature bird for generic mana, flying. Historic spells you cast cost one less to cast. And it's 2-2. Yeah, the obvious point of comparison here is Foundry Inspector Mm -hmm. for one more mana that flies. Yep, and Foundry Inspector has (laughs) one more point of power, which is obviously humongously useful in its home. Definitely. But flying is also very good in that mirror match. (laughs) Yep. So to take a page from your Weatherlight Skyship comparison, what about both? (laughs) Wow. So We've seen, what was that ridiculous four mana two power flyer that actually made top eight at the mana drain open or was it or was it the waterbury or was it the nyse there was the two the four mana two two haster that was an artifact you remember that no snare thopter oh snare thopter that wasn't a vehicle no it's just an artifact creature four mana flying haste oh it's three two i thought it was two two it's three two flying haste so it's it i think this is better than that it, it straddles the line between this and the the fleet wheel cruiser 
because it has haste. Yeah. Snarethopter. I think this is better than Snarethopter. I think the, the, the mana reduction in a format where we're talking about damping sphere and wastelands and being low to the ground, I think this is better. Let, let me So find... I guess the question is, if you were going to build a workshop deck with this in addition to Foundry Inspector, what would you cut? What's getting cut? I don't know the answer to that, but I think that there are some flex cards that have gone in and out True. of the main deck for True. workshops for the last couple of months, right? The the metamorphs, the the maybe some precursor gola, those kind of things. There have been in a certain numbers of hangerback walkers. There have been some flex slots. Yes, true. But part of me views the workshop mirror as if you get to cast a four mana spell, it it ought to be a real good one. <laughs> and I'm not right. certain that so this, this is quite that, good I'm enough. not certain that a flying inspector qualifies. But hey. I, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe the inspector effect is just so incredibly valuable that that you'd rather have that. But this does pale. I mean, post sideboard, this pales in comparison pretty strongly to the the weatherlight, right? For four mana, I'm pretty sure I would rather have a weatherlight well, than this. Wow, that's a good point. And perhaps just a two two hangerback walker is a is a far superior card for four mana. On the first turn, I think I'd rather have this. On the first turn, the weatherlight is of of reduced utility. I'll grant you that. I think I'd rather have this over a two-two hanger back on the first turn as well. Really? Um, yeah, I mean because I, okay. I mean the for the same reason I'd rather there. Yes. Yeah, I mean if you go workshop mocks this again, you're going to be able to unload your hand um, on turn two. I mean you could even then play. You could even then tap the workshop for a foundry inspector or another one of these. And if you play foundry inspector, you still have one mana left. You haven't even played your second land drop, and then all your two mana spells are free from that point on. Yeah. That's interesting. I wonder, on the flip side, though, how many opening hands for workshops are just unkeepable because you draw one of these and no shop, right? Par- Good point. Inspector yeah. still synergizes with Ancient Tomb almost as well, and this needs to get a little lucky. Ancient Tomb double mocks for this, and then you're, you only have three more cards in your hand. So yeah, the difference between three and four is still pretty enormous for how lo- little I, this impacts the board. I don't want to be caught. I mean, we didn't even, I don't think, uh, we did not in our Kaladesh review. No, we did not anticipate not how even, impactful Inspector was going to be on the format, definitely. Yeah, we didn't even review it, let alone dismiss it. Yeah. It wasn't even in our review. So, I don't want to make that mistake again. <laughs> well, we didn't. We're reviewing it. <laughs> That's true. So, let's put it, let's put it a little bit differently. If they told you you could play eight Foundry Inspectors in shops today, would you? Seems yes. pretty clear that the answer is yes. I, I would yeah. play 16 of them if I could. <laughs> so that that's a pretty that's powerful insane. indicator. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. It's absurd, but true. And also, to your point earlier about flying, how many games are you going to win just because you load this thing up with your Ravager on turn three? But, but I think you make a very powerful point about the Weatherlight being better than this at a certain point. Like, And that point might be after turn one. Yeah, I think that's reasonable. <laughs> But it's not an either-or situation, as you've said many times, right? The question is not this or that. The question is, could be this and that. <laughs> and the weatherlight is far more likely to be a one-of, as we've demonstrated with the Skyship. Maybe a two-of, because it costs this, four. But this is far more likely to be a four-of. This is actually better than Inspector in some respects, because the Inspector just reduces the cost of artifacts. This it reduces the, the um, cost of colorless legend, uh, legends. So if there's an Eldrazi that's legendary or Karn, oh, the Planeswalker, it makes... Wow. 
Good call. I was discounting that entirely. But yes, this card is fantastic with the new Karn. How yeah. interesting. <laughs> so it has a broader scope. And we haven't gotten to sagas yet, but are there any colorless sagas? Not or anything like that? No, not that I've seen. What about Eldrazi? Are there any legendary Eldrazi? I mean, I'm sure there's a legendary Eldrazi. That's the whole point of the Eldrazi. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the original large Eldrazi are legendary, but they're yeah. also like a dozen mana, so they they don't have the same impact in terms of castability and vintage, right? I mean, Ember Cool and, and her her friends. So I don't think the reducing the cost of an Ember Cool is actually particularly relevant outside of EDH. Yeah. Unless you're playing Aperture Science, but that's, that's a pretty narrow <laughs> use case. Are there any are any of the Eldrazi legendary? Yeah, all the big titans are. are. Pl- I'm sorry, the smaller ones. Oh, <laughs> the mid-sized ones. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to do a quick search for Eldrazi that are not legends. Oh, no, you're looking for the other way around. Eldrazi yes. that are legends. So the cheapest Eldrazi that is also a legend aside from the meld card which is irrelevant is still 10 mana, Kozilek. So they didn't make any legendary eldrazi that weren't of the original three titans they've had two cards each got it okay that's fine well i guess yeah the, the only use case in which this has a broader scope is then the karn the karns uh planeswalkers mm-hmm. the the other karn is pretty unbelievable it actually remember it was in the finals of the bizarre moxen one year <laughs> yes i'd forgotten about that <laughs> <laughs> but that karn costs seven and even though this it costs I six and it is... i know but if you've got a pair of these yeah you know true well so I think we've landed on this card is probably vintage playable and it will probably be just defaulted as a four of in certain early test versions of shops. Yes, and, but it might not get to the tournament top eight. <laughs> well, and so, yeah, I was just about to say the next question is, do we expect that iteration of shops to outperform its its familiarless uh, forebears? And I would say that's going to be that's going to be a bit of a toss up. There are certain yeah. there are certain mirrors that you will win because you've got extra familiars because you've got extra cost reducers. Right. And right. So, I mean, in the mirror match, it's huge. And additional cost reduction makes certain sideboard cards like Worm Coil engines even more potent. Right. Yep. Turn two Worm Coil the Sky Sovereign. Yeah, more reliably, and the Sky Sovereign, and maybe the Weatherlight. So I think we're going to see this, and I think it's going to work, and I think. The question is what portion of the wow. the workshop field it takes over is I don't think it's going to take over half of the workshop field immediately but if it if it if it's reliably good in the mirror then it might not take long for that avalanche to to switch over. Is it fair to say that you've just done a 180 on this card? It I was not impressed with it initially but the analysis comparing it to Inspector and realizing how critical Inspector is in the workshop mirror has <laughs> as I think flipped me on this card. You've moved. Well, so then yeah. my next question then becomes, I mean, this could be a one of right. if, if you don't want to sacrifice too much other stuff. And I could completely understand that because I think Overseer is probably more important than the mirror. And so are many of the two drops. Yes. But yeah, you're not going to lose. You're not going to lose Revoker, Ravager, Overseer, yeah. or Ballista, uh, or Founder Inspectors over this. So this isn't adi- after all those. Granted. But... But it competes, I think, with Chief of the Foundry. It competes with Metamorph. Yes. It competes with Hangerback Walker. Yes. Yes. So it's 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 you know it's all it's on that list. It's immediately on that list. I I really like it. I am. Um, and if Snarethopter can make yeah. a top eight in vintage, <laughs> yes, this thing, then this thing definitely <laughs> will. <laughs> I just have to say that I I'm really I really find compelling 
the the sequence of workshop mocks Jorah turn two inspector drop your hand yeah uh it's just it's just well and, and you, you know, can switch the order of those two things right because you could just go workshop inspector right, right. turn two workshop familiar drop your hand jesus that's even that's even more logical <laughs> oh my god <laughs> yeah so yes. so you can drop your hand off of a single yes. workshop on two because you've got double cost reducer and that's not that's not <laughs> That's not a giant breakthrough in science. It just That's means a- that this is now much more reliable. <laughs> because you could drop your hand off it's of Workshop a- and Inspector anyway. You know, Workshop Inspector next turn three two drops is it's still it is, good enough. It is this not just a makes break- it more reliable. It's not a break. Yeah, it's not a breakthrough in science. It is certainly a breakthrough in mad science. So, <laughs> well, so what we're talking about here is is shades of reliability. And, yeah, and that's where the conversation about the workshop mirror comes in. Is you want to be, you get yes. paid for being more reliable in the mirror, and also for having a diversity of this effect. I mean, having the second foundry inspector is probably not better than having this over the second foundry inspector. Uh, yep, you know you're right, they, and the flying becomes huge there. That's what I'm right. saying. If you were, With the flying plus steel overseer and the ravager, re- yeah. thing, you want this. No, I like the you way you want this. I like the way you framed that. I like the way you think. No, but uh, <laughs> you, you, the, the specific framing of if I had to pick an opening hand that had two cost reducers, I would want one of each of these. <laughs> yeah, and that says a lot. I think that's very. <laughs> I think that's very meaningful. Huh. Very very interesting. I don't expect I, I don't expect this to become the standard just by default right away. I think there's a lot yeah. of considerations and opportunity costs from a deck development standpoint, but I, I immediately think that this is playable. And even if it's only a one of, you know, it takes over one of those flex slots, it might do that quickly for a lot of players. And then some of those players might say, hey, this is great. Now I want two or three. And it could landslide. It could it could easily landslide into becoming a standard. Right. Also, it's a bird. So. <laughs> so this this will probably show up at first as like a one or a two of and then it'll go we'll go from there yeah agreed well that's pretty exciting actually this could turn out to be numerically the most played card in the set and that's saying something wow <laughs> uh i don't uh jesus wow so we both came into this analysis as skeptics and now we're both believers <laughs> i mean hey it wouldn't <laughs> be the first time right <laughs> <laughs> What's going on here? We need to do a reality check. Make sure we're what we need to do is count the top eights by Foundry Inspector in Q one. So I've got one, two. That's absurd. It's going to be three, a million. four, five. It's not that many. Uh, if you're counting six, the Power Nine challenges, seven, it sure eight, is. Vintage challenges, it sure is. Nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty, twenty-one. Well, so I'm now I'm back to early January, and I so it's. Between twenty and thirty gotten, to the start, but you haven't even gotten to. Have you had power? Have you done the vintage challenges in there? Yes, the challenges are most of this volume. Oh. Yeah. Okay. So if you go all the way back to the beginning of the year, it's probably closer to 30, thirty or thirty-five. Yeah. But if you're just the last three months, it's between twenty-five and thirty. So let's just take half that, and and maybe less, maybe a third of that. That's what we're looking at, right? Yeah. That, then that's down to your judgment about how you envision people to accept this. But I think that's a good starting point. So so fifteen is probably the, the the over under point and due to adoption yep. and people not people not look taking the card seriously i think it's probably going to come in under that i'll take the under 10 that's my view they're going to go with 9 <laughs> i think it, no I'll, I'll i'll go 8 you're going to go 8 it's interesting i think i think that's an interesting hedge on your part i think yeah i'm going to take the over on 8 i'll i'll go 12 okay 
that might be that might be a little generous, but we'll see. It's, <laughs> yeah. but, I mean, it's Sonry Inspector, right? We didn't even review it, and it was a, a little bit of a slow exactly. burn, but then it just landslide and became the standard. It was unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, the cards that are powerful and vintage are just... I mean, Steel Overseer is a dominant tactic. <laughs> if, if workshops could play... What's the limit on the number of Steel Overseers it would play? <laughs> It's hard to even know. Yeah, <laughs> it like, I like that kind of. It'd be like that kind of fifteen. Question. Yeah, it's fascinating. <laughs> the card is totally absurd. <laughs> <laughs> it's the most innocuous thing ever, right. and it's just totally absurd. Right. All right. Well, can I can I introduce our next card, Kevin? Oh, please. Our next card is Traxos Scourge of Krug. <laughs> <laughs> Such a great name. Four mana. Four mana. Legendary Artifact Creature Construct Trample. Traxos Scourge of Krug enters the battlefield tapped and doesn't untap during your untap step. Un- whenever you cast a historic spell, untap Traxos. 7-7. Seven, seven. Oh, that's awesome. Legendary Artifact Creature Construct. It's pretty impressive. So this would be just in a workshop deck, a giant beater. And at the moment, there is no creature that's played in workshops just because it's big, right? Right. <laughs> this would be un- unprecedented in the, along that axis. Now, just because it's big is a little bit of an oversimplification. It has trample, and it has a quasi kind of vigilance as well. At least for the first couple of turns, it will. This card is pretty big game, too, in the mirror, right? Because trample means you, oh, can't, God, yes. you can't just chump with thopters and whatnot. And talking speaking of cards that are good in the mirror, yeah. this is And the quasi vigilance, at least for a couple of turns, is is highly relevant. I'm not sure this is better than Precursor Golem in the Mirror, but it might be better as a main deck card. That's true. It doesn't die to dismember. It does not die to dismember. It does not die to, it does it yeah, it um it's faster than Precursor Golem out of the gate, mm-hmm. and it can't be chumped by tokens because the trample. Trample has incredible le- synergy with with Ravager. It is legendary, so you're not going to probably play four of this. Right. Nor would you Kevin, want to anyway, I don't think. A couple years ago, we reviewed a creature that I think like it got like was a really big artifact. I think it was like 9-9, nine, nine, and it has cost reduction for every artifact in play. Yeah, I think you're talking about Metalwork Colossus. That's exactly right. Which is 11-11, I believe. Oh, it's a cost 9 and there's 11-11, right? Yeah. How much play is that card seen? Not that that's actually a direct comparison, but... Uh, so, correction. The Metalwork Colossus costs 11, is a 10-10, and it costs X less to cast, where X is the total converted mana cost of non-creature artifacts you control. It was the, In play, it was yeah. the non-creature bit that really was the linchpin, because workshops were just so creature-heavy that, that this frequently had no cost reduction <laughs> in, in modern workshops. If you're asking how many top eights has Metalwork Colossus performed in vintage well it hasn't done one this year it did a couple last year in terms of main deck appearance and i don't think it had any in the sideboard but i'll double check here uh yeah one appearance in the sideboard last year that was just in a daily though so metalwork colossus effectively nothing in the last year or more but also i don't think i mean it had had some key failings metalwork colossus did the non-creature part is huge it's pretty impressive that we can just pay four mana and get a 7-7, seven, seven, where the Metalwork Colossus is only a 10-10. <laughs> but the Metalwork Colossus also has additional upside that you can sacrifice two artifacts and return it from your graveyard to your hand. So it has some inevitability. Right. This Traxos is serious business, though. You play an Inspector on yes, one. Yes, it is. And on turn two, you play Traxos for three, 
and then play another land or a mox and untap it right away. It's just ready to go next turn as a 7-7. I mean, your opponent could conceivably be dead on board to this plus an inspector plus a ravager on turn three. No sweat. You hit him for three on two from the inspector you played, play Traxos plus Ravager. That's 11, 14. Okay, you'd have to have, you'd have to have at least one more artifact generator for them to be dead on board on turn three that way. But that's still, that's still an impressive swing. I think this card's going to see a lot of play. I really do. Really? Yes, I do. So it has, I think that it has a pretty big hole in its game against Dak Faden, unfortunately. (laughs) What doesn't? Well, to be perfectly honest, many creatures in modern shops don't have a big hole against deck. That's part of the reason they're played so much. But this does. I think. I think. I mean, I think it's pretty reliable that you'll be able to untap it. Um, yes. I think the trample is hugely significant. Actually, you know, now that I think about it, the hole against deck Faden isn't that big because your opponent is far less likely to be able to untap it. But it can be a pretty yeah. bad seven-seven wall well, that's hard for you to break also, through. Also, I mean, also just the fact that. Against, I mean, you have the workshop deck has so many good tools against Dak. It's got yeah. the ballista, the Ravager. Yeah. I mean, it's got a lot, a lot there going on. Um, ra- it's got Ravager, uh, Revoker, and Ballista. I, I think this is really good. I do. Um, I think that what makes it so strong is it's it's main deckable, but also strong in the workshop mirror. True. Oh, and seven I, seven is a particularly relevant body against Oath. Yes. Oh God, yes! Swing yeah. into Gristlebrand, and Gristlebrand can't uh, it can't survive. Well, this is a turn one play. Yeah, good point. I mean, this is crazy fast. Yeah. <laughs> or if you, yeah, I mean, it's it's fast. It's really fast. This 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 creature is pretty metal. So this that's the difference between Col- Metalwork Colossus and this. This is a turn one play. Yeah, that's a good point. It's a very good point. It's legendary, it's so big. you can probably only start with, what, two in your main, you think? Yeah, probably around there. But there's not a lot of opportunity costs swapping this for a Hangerback Walker, is there? This card's well, the, far more impressive yeah, than mean, a Hangerback Walker number three. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the Hangerback also has evasion, and it powers up the Ravager, but... But still. It might be better in terms of blocking and then distributing, but this is better on offense. Which is where I like to be anyway. Definitely agree. And just more synergy with Ravager. Trample and Ravager are just so incredibly good. Yeah, this is good. This is really good. Okay, well, let's skip to the the meat then. How do we predict the performance of this, given the analysis we just did on Inspector? Do you think there's going to be a dozen copies of this in the next quarter? (laughs) Yes, I do. (laughs) Possibly more. (laughs) All right. Yeah, I think it's going to be more. I think it might be the most played card in the set. Really? That's wow. I love the fact that we yeah, keep it, saying that. <laughs> I just I just think that I think that it's the I think that it is the best card that we've seen for the workshop deck and in the workshop mirror. And I think workshop is best. The best deck. Fascinating. Right Absolutely fascinating. All right, so we went eight and twelve. I that was you on eight, me on twelve for Joyra's failure. Yeah. I'm taking the I'm taking the way above on this. I think I'm going to peg this at you know what I think I'm going to put it below my damping sphere prediction, but I'm going to go f- 15. Wow, wow. When I first looked no, at this you card, know what? let me let me take I'm going to take 13. I'm going to take 13. That's a more calibrated decision. <laughs> you said there were about 30 foundry inspectors. Um, it was between 25 and 30. Yeah, this card is big. Wow, and it's fast. I'm gonna I I, I think it's like precursor to golem. 
whatever the numbers of precursors are, that's what I'm thinking this is going to be like. Oh. Around there. Well, then allow me to find what the precursor number is. Yeah, back to mid-January, 17 sideboard appearances for precursor. <clears throat> that's not even main deck. No, yeah. and then main deck appearances, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9... Oh, those are that's already back to January. 9, gonna, 10, 11. A, so, uh, uh, 10 or 11 for May. I'm going to go 13 overall for this then. Okay. 13. That's my spot. That's impressive. And I ain't moving. I I am skeptical. I mean, I am skeptical about people's adoption of just a large creature. So, we've made our case and <laughs> yeah. it's it's compelling. There's a lot of utility here. <laughs> But I also think that this is the kind of effect that people, a lot of people will just poo-poo and say, yeah, that's just big. Um, but if this was played turn one and the Vintage Championship, this would have won the Vintage Championship in the finals. <laughs> I'm serious. I mean, that's... I'm serious. That's, that's you, compelling. You can't, you can't dismember this. The only thing you can do is copy it. <laughs> that's the only way to defeat it. Nice. <laughs> you can't beat him, join him. <laughs> yep. <laughs> or make up. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's, that's a compelling statement. I I don't know how to it can't be, I don't it know can't how to encapsulate I don't know how to it cannot be chumped. Yeah, I, I don't know how to encapsulate what I'm feeling. I just feel like this is the sort of card that will be dismissed by certain people up front, maybe until they lose to it a couple of times. And it wouldn't be the first <laughs> card in vintage to follow that trajectory. So I am going to take the under on thirteen and go with I'm gonna go with uh seven. All right. I don't think it's gonna be adopted as quickly. All right. But also the topic that you brought up early on in this show about how the texture of vintage tournaments go throughout the year, I think, bears on this because this could be the sort of thing that we don't see. This could be the kind of technology that doesn't emerge until a large event like SCGCon. Right, the Star City Con, yeah. yeah. Similar to how Steel Overseer broke out last year. So it might it might follow a trajectory like that. All right. But remember, this only has to appear as a one-of in a deck. To make top eight. Fair enough. You're all right. That's a pretty low threshold. <laughs> this set is scaring me. It's got good cards against workshops, but it's making workshops even better. <laughs> well, we'll see. <laughs> Every card we've discussed for workshops so far has been a four drop, though, which is, I think, a relevant metric to keep an eye on. Yeah, because there's never any good four drops in workshops. <laughs> no, but you can't play as many as we're predicting here. <laughs> I know. <laughs> anyway. We've only seen four of them and said we've all four of them we've said are playable. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, that, that only is to the good uh, or to the, rather, yeah. the good of the workshop player. <laughs> Fair enough. All right, moving on. <laughs> all right, let's talk briefly about Zalfrin Void. Which is a cool card. It's a land. When Zelfer Void enters the battlefield, scry one, and you tap it to add C to your mana pool. This is a pretty low impact land, right? I mean, the it, it's it's obviously not impactful enough to surpass Workshop or Ancient Tomb or Factory or Wasteland in the Workshop deck. It might have been useful in Eldrazi if the Eldrazi decks hadn't ever migrated to be a colored deck, meaning adopting um Painlands and Cavern of Souls, for example, and now with the recent advent of Unclaimed Territory, they can easily just play colored spells reliably. There are there is a place for lands that provide spell like effects in the colorless based decks in Vintage, and in that sense, I think that this meets that relatively ambiguous threshold of adding uh, not quite a card's worth of value in a scry. But the 
I think, greater than cards worth of value that you get by casting uncounterable spells with Cavern, for example, or by having Mitra's Factory, of course, that kind of thing. I just think the competition is too high at lands and vintage for this thing to to break through. Yeah, I agree. Even Tribal Eldrazi has fantastic spell-like effects in things like Eye of Ugin, and obviously it has its own soul lands, so... I just don't think this is a scry is enough, even though it's a very would be a very welcome effect in those decks. Uh, so I'm going to go zero, and I assume you will as well. Me too. Yep. Yeah. Let's talk also about Voltaic Servant, artifact hmm. creature construct, two mana at the beginning of your end step, untap target artifact, and it is one three. This is kind of an interesting card. So pretty synergistic with Traxos, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> True. What a beating. <laughs> no, so uh, the benefit here being a combination of a body plus a voltaic key effect for, for no additional incremental mana. Or or mox, untap a mox sure. type thing. No, but what I mean is the voltaic yeah. key effect. So right, got it. This is, in a workshop context, this can get you some quasi-vigilance, but it's at the cost of a really effective body. One three is yeah. it's only okay. It has some benefit. You know, it stands in the way of opposing revokers effectively, but not for long once your opponent has Ravager. It's no good against Ballista. It's no good against Joyrus Familiar or Traxos. So as of the body is of limited utility and very weak on offense. But more specifically, the average workshop deck is not interested in just getting an incremental untap during its end step. Obviously, you can pair this with Time Vault to go infinite still, but I don't think Time Vault is lacking synergy at this point amongst Voltaic Key and Tezzeret right. and Paradox Engine, yeah. you wouldn't add this over any of those other more effective cards in, say, an Outcome deck or a Grixis Control deck. I just... Is is there some... Is there some cumulative benefit you would get from having multiples of these in play and doing something sneaky? I can't... Whatever it is, I can't think of it. <sighs> so you could kind of, like, tap... No, I was going to say tap top, but you're, yeah, you need something where you can like get an effect, use it again, like a Staff of Nim or something. I don't know, yeah. that's not it either. No, I mean, Staff yeah. of Nim Staff of Nim's a good example of the kind of thing I'm thinking of. You could double up on those, but you're only double up on the, on the ping there. You're not getting card draw. I guess it would be good with Oracle's Vault. No, it wouldn't be very good with Oracle's Vault. All you'd be doing is adding brick counters, unless you flipped up an instant, which you wouldn't be in such a deck. I mean, aside from the outcome decks that Oracle's Vault has been in, but this is not an outcome card, this Voltaic Servant. It's just it's low impact when you play it, so Voltaic Key is far better in those decks. No, I, I really don't... I'm really not feeling it. It allows you to fix your mana in Mox-heavy decks, like Opal decks, but those decks tend not to need that effect, and definitely don't need a 1-3 body. No, I think this is a card without a home. <laughs> I'm gonna go zero. Me too. Yeah. Goodness, finally. <laughs> an artifact that's not good in workshops. <laughs> all right speaking of which this is not an artifact and not good in workshops let's talk about lich's mastery for three bbb <laughs> legendary enchantment it has hexproof which is fun you can't lose the game also fun whenever you gain life draw that many cards okay it's a lich whenever you lose life for each one life you lost exile a permanent you control or a card from your hand or graveyard so it's a better lich when lich's mastery leaves play you lose the game this is just a way better lich isn't it well, it costs more. Okay, but, fair enough. <laughs> but yes, <laughs> it better be for six mana. I guess is a good one way to put it. <laughs> yeah, it's isn't it all, all basically identical? Well, but this has hexproof, except except for the hexproof. And when right. you lose life, the cards can come from permanence, hand, or graveyard. 
Yeah, that's insane. Which is an improvement. That's really, yeah. yeah. But otherwise, the rest of it is just lit. I think this card is hilarious and awesome, but I mean... Oh, yeah. I mean, if there was a place for Lich, we would be playing regular Lich in Vintage right now, or Nefarious Lich, perhaps. I... I built I don't think I built in Legacy go. a really cool Lich deck that I've never published. Oh yeah. But it uses um there's a creature called uh I think Children of Corliss, I think. Yep. And and you can basically accelerate out Lich with Dark Rituals, Chrome Mox, Cabal Ritual, and you can shield yourself by playing Silence first yep. or, you know, some effect like that. And you just play Children of Corliss, then you cast Lich, and you basically draw your deck immediately on the spot. Well, you draw 20 cards. Because you you draw 20 <laughs> cards. The reason I say you draw your deck is because you draw 20 cards, yep. and then in the next 20 cards, you will have drawn another Chrome Mox and another Children of Corliss, yep. and, and a white spell, like a Silence, to imprint it. You draw another and 20. Then you draw, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And then you all you have to do is then just go like Lotus Petal, Dark Ritual, Cabal Ritual, Tendrils. Yep. That's pretty fun. I like it a lot. It is fun. That's why I bought four liches years ago, <laughs> and also, of course, for old school. Yeah. This but, so this lich is an awesome lich, and as liches go, it's very lichy. But um, <laughs> well said. <laughs> but it costs six mana, and it pretty much pales in direct comparison to Dark Petition and uh, uh, Yogmoth's uh, bargain, of course. So I don't think there's really any contest from a vintage standpoint. And that brings us to the end of our Dominaria review. Thank you for listening to episode 78 of So Many Insane Plays. You can tweet us at many insane plays or email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com. As always, and until next time, we wish you many insane plays. Ha, 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 ha.